I've always felt that uh, it'd be wonderful if I could shoot a film the way I see things, literally the way I see things as I'm walking around. And I happen to move very quickly. I walk fast and I talk fast, and, and I see things quickly, I think. And I've tried to formulate it into a style, and it is like, it is literally like taking the eye, the heads of the, uh, the people in the audience and grabbing them by the back of their hair and forcing them to see things by different cuts and camera moves the way I see them, or the way I get impressions that I see them. They're really impressions of what I see and movement. I'm really annoyed that I can never really get certain camera moves fast enough. I'm trying to capture the way I, the way I perceive things. Uh, I use the word perceive rather than see because I could see something but I'll remember it in some sort of a, maybe in a different perception, maybe a different image or it'll be it expressed another way and uh, it'll be as if the camera zoomed in or it'll be as if the camera tracked from left to right parallel, you know, but actually I was moving another way but that's the way I remember it. And I try to get those images in my mind, those impressions through moves, camera moves or cuts. Actually through cuts, that's even more fun. And uh, I just like to enjoy it, that's all. I like to enjoy when I make a picture. The New Beverly presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. So, Elric, we have talked about a few different directors on this show already. Uh, for people that haven't heard them, we've talked about Alfred Hitchcock. We have talked about Mr. Quentin Tarantino. And most recently, we have talked about Mr. John Carpenter. And uh, so we wanted to continue that tradition. We decided that that would probably be a thing we were going to do at least once a season. Um, well, we did more than talk about them. We paired them. That's right. That's right. With Not every, all of Hitchcock, obviously. Yeah. With every director we talked about, we decided to go through their filmography one by one, except for Hitchcock, and talk about each movie and then pair each of us pair it with another movie that we thought would be interesting to kind of associate with it or something that we felt personally was interesting to talk about along with that film. So we're doing that again. Yeah, this was a slightly different uh, scope project, though, I'd say. Uh, and we're still working on it as we are, have now completed our work on part one. But yeah, tackling, you know, one of the greatest living American film directors, Martin Scorsese, uh, is not easy when his filmography is, what was it, about... But what is it, about 26 movies? Something like that. And Something we decided like right off the bat we were going to only do narrative films, no documentaries. I mean, he's done a ton of great yep. documentary work, too. Um, that could be another episode. Who knows? But uh, just so you know, we will be not talking about, you know, at least in this first group, Italian-American, the you know, Last Waltz, uh, American Boy. Definitely go see those movies, but... Um, we just had to pare it down somehow. It was just too big a project as it was. Yeah, and we've split already pre-decided that this was going to be a three-part series. Uh, that will, We don't know exactly how the release schedule of that will work out yet as we're recording the first one. But that's what it's going to be. So we already kind of split them into sections. And it was interesting by splitting them into three. You definitely saw periods of, the, of an artist at work. And it became very clear straight away. Uh, each one of those you know, felt like pretty clean breaks in, in a filmography uh, which I thought was pretty interesting and we'll obviously talk more about that as we get to each one and also I think you know I was a little we talked about Scorsese early on and I was a little hesitant at one point not just because of the amount of films but thinking it'd be repetitive in a sense but then you realize very quickly like even though his style and themes are repetitive 
the kind of movies he's made, he's worked in just so many different genres and he's bounced around so much, especially in the last, you know, 10 years. Uh, so I, so I think there is enough, uh, enough change and growth throughout to make this a really interesting series. Yeah, for sure. And it was a lot of fun to go back and watch his movies and, I think we both chose to do it chronologically. Yeah, no, I did. I watched, and we don't always watch every film again because sometimes things fresh in your mind from a couple years. But I got to say, with this series, I think that's what I'm going to do. Not always all my pairings if I don't have time, but for all of his films, I'm going to watch, and that's part of the project is kind of getting that experience again of seeing every one of his films, Uh, which is something that you know might not sound like something you want to binge, but if you can take your time doing it, I, I found this first section to be fascinating. Um, because you just you really could see the chronology of his voice and and sometimes there's surprises in there there's a couple in here that I hadn't seen believe it or not that we'll get to which uh, mostly because sometimes with like great filmmakers I'm I try to not be a completist straight away because then I'm worried I won't have anything left but there's one I can, I can honestly say I just had plum not been on my radar as having existed in, in his filmography so obviously I didn't uh, scratch deep enough yeah no so we should say for this section, I don't know if we're going to lay out every section in this episode, but for this section, this first group, we're going to go through Raging Bull, and that'll be our end point for this episode. Which I believe is seven films. Yeah. So that just gives you an idea. I mean, roughly, we'll cover about a decade or so per episode. Yeah. I think it's going to get a little wider in that last one, but um, Yeah, and it it jumps around a lot more in in that last section when we get there. Um, And just to start, and and neither of us actually discussed this before, but do you recall the first time you're aware of Scorsese as a filmmaker or a specific film? You know, it's funny. I think it was... I'm trying to remember. I I think it might have been Taxi Driver, but I think it was something where I had seen... Maybe I saw like Cape Fear in the theater or something, you know what I mean? But I didn't know who he was. I'm not exactly sure. But I do remember when I first saw Taxi Driver, it became like a real seminal movie for me. I remember movies I was obsessed with in early college were, you know, stuff like Clockwork Orange, Dr. Strangelove, Taxi Driver. Um, I remember I made a mixtape for my girlfriend at the time that was like visual mixtape. So I had like the opening of Blue Velvet, you know, with the bugs and then like the end of Dr. Strangelove and... Oh, on VHS or something? Yeah, yeah. I I did like a tape to tape and then I had like something from Clockwork, probably where he hits the guys into the river and then Taxi Driver, the scene where he's looking at the coffee cup. Oh, dude, stuff I, like I, that. I would have totally boned you for a VHS. <laughs> I, I think that's so impressive. I've, in fact, I've never heard anyone doing that. That's pretty cool. It was a weird, pretentious thing to do, but it was fun. Uh, you know what? I think it's a very similar trajectory. I mean, I know it was probably Taxi Driver, but in the same boat, it's possible. I definitely saw Cape Fear in theaters. I have a very clear memory of that. Uh, but I think I think I was like more like 15 or so when I would have seen Taxi Driver. Uh, and I would have just, you know, I would have heard about it for a long time and probably been a bit of a taboo about seeing it, knowing, you know, that it was meant to be this very violent uh, movie. But it, I, like you, it, it definitely is something that instantly hit a chord. It's really interesting how movies like that and, uh, you know, Reservoir Dogs and, and the, the Clockwork Orange have this thing that they really connect to uh, young guys and, you know, and girls, I assume. But uh, I can only speak for myself, you know, when you're in your young kind of teenage years. And I wonder why that is, because, yes, it's violent. But I, what does that really connect to if you're not violent? Like, I'm not I wasn't violent. You know what I mean? Like, I'm wondering yeah. what it is about that that really connects at that age. 
Um, I have no idea, but it definitely, definitely did. And I think maybe it's with that movie and maybe Alex and clockwork, it's about the isolation, you know, uh, even if you had friends and stuff, being a teenager in general, you kind of feel like you're against the world and those characters certainly do. Yeah. Yeah. It was something about that. I, I couldn't even put my finger on it, but, but I definitely noticed the style, you know, immediately mm. with taxi driver, you know, that coffee cup shot yeah. was a big one for me. Um, cause I was just like, I'd never seen a movie sort of stop and do something stylistic like that, you know? And so it was just like, wow, somebody decided they wanted to do that and, and, and sort of put a pin in the narrative for a second and just kind of be more poetic about it. And and so that really stuck with me, I think. See, when I was 15, I was like, ah, clear reference to Godard. Very interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, the two or three things I know about her. Ah, the coffee the coffee and cream as the galaxy shot. Very good. Very good, Marty. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I, I was unaware Sorry, yeah, of no, this, the, Godard until the, my um, 20s. It's the Alka-Seltzer shot. That's what I keep saying. I keep saying the coffee shot, but I mean the Alka-Seltzer. It's Alka-Seltzer for the, him, but coffee for Godard. Exactly. But but you're right. Like, And they're both are. And, he, and I know Marty actually uh, talks about it. So And then Kieslowski uh, also does it in uh, blue with the uh, sugar cubes. Uh, and there's a, there's a really cool making of where he talks about he needed sugar cubes that dissolved in coffee. It exactly took exactly five seconds, and he had people scouring the city for these sugar cubes. That so anyway, so th- there's a long history of dissolving shots. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I mean, you know, I think I think for both of us, he's an important filmmaker, and I think probably different periods he's been. Uh, and there's probably certain ones of his films that w- anyone listening to the show in the past knows. Uh, how important After Hours is to both of us. So that will be in part two. That'll be interesting. Uh, anyone who follows you any on anything would know the importance of uh, your handle, Rupert Pupkin. Uh, yeah. So clearly when we get to uh, King of Comedy, that'll be interesting. But some of these are films we've never discussed in this in this block. Uh, and so I think that's going to be really interesting, especially the ones uh, less, le- lesser known. Yeah. No, it's like I said, as you get older, you don't tend to do exercises like this where you go chronologically because you know you've seen this or that over the years and maybe you're holding off on one film here or there but unless you're taking a class which when you get to our age you're probably not it's just not something you do and so it's really neat to see an evolution of a filmmaker especially one that you admire as much as we both admire Scorsese in this way. So I do recommend it. It is time consuming. And we did realize that going in that we're going to have to set aside a good amount of time to do this project, but um, very rewarding, I will say. Yeah. And he's also a guy, I think what's interesting about this first block is he's a guy now seen as a bit of a teddy bear. I feel like a lot of older directors are seen a certain way. They, you don't, you don't see Scorsese now and think of his edge. You, you see this uh, gentle soul of cinema, of world cinema and film preservation. And just to me, he is, he kind of is cinema now. Like of all the filmmakers who've aged, he's the one who seems to kind of, um, you know, beat the drum the loudest for the uh, both preservation and just kind of film as the key universal language. And, and so I think people forget that he was a super edgy director who was at certain periods, you know, uh, issues with drugs, uh, certain periods in this first period, you know, uh, you know, just not sure if he would make another movie ever again after he, and throwing it all out on the screen and just, you know, letting it fly. And, and that's, there's something so exciting about that. And, and, and really awesome that he also got to have all these different acts to his life and his career to be who he is now um, is, is pretty remarkable. Because, you know, there's a lot of filmmakers who do get lost along the way 
um, of these kind of paths. Yeah, and who, you know, who as much as you'd like to think have another great film in them, maybe don't. And and Scorsese definitely does and continues to make... Every film that he puts out is the has the potential to be something fantastic, which is pretty remarkable for a guy who's been doing it as long as he has. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, let's get into it because we got 16, uh, or no, more than that, uh, 17, 14, 21 movies to talk about. Yes, yeah, sir. <laughs> so let's let's start uh, with 1967, his first feature film, which I had never seen, and that's Who's That Knocking at My Door? So that's really a French magazine, huh? Yes, I'm afraid it is. Why? Now, how the hell did they ever get a hold of the searchers? The what? The searchers. It's a movie uh, made about, you know, about 11 years ago. And that picture of John Wayne is from that movie. I don't seem to remember it. Oh, you know, with uh, John Wayne. Oh, that other guy was in it. Uh, oh, what's his name? He, uh, oh, he played Christ a few years ago in some movie. Uh, I don't uh, think I know it. Oh, was he Swedish? No, no, American. Roland, Roland. Roland. Recent picture? Uh, yeah, just a few years ago. It's a Western. Yeah. Oh, you mean Jeffrey Hunter? That's right, Hunter, uh, right, yeah. right. Oh, now you remember the picture. <laughs> no, I, I don't. <laughs> it was in color? Nope. No. No. Well. Oh, wait a minute, you know what? Natalie Wood did a small part in that picture, one of her first parts, you know? She, uh, she had a big scene at the end there with, uh, with Hunter, you know? She comes, uh, running down the desert over the Hunter, and she says, uh, on Mago, Martin. Go and may go. You know, she's uh, she's trying to get him to uh, to go, you know. Uh, I don't remember it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Mr. Good Picture. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, hey, there was this one scene in that movie that was a classic. You know, the uh, the uh, chief of the tribe, his name is Chicatrice, Spanish for scar, you know. He talks English to John Wayne, and Wayne says, uh, you talk good English, somebody teach you. But real nasty, you know. And then when Wayne talks Comanche to, not Comanche, but Comanche, to Scar, Scar says, uh, uh, you talk good Comanche, somebody teach you, you know, but... Was... Sounds like a nasty fella. <laughs> Who? Oh, oh, the man with the Scar, the Chicatrice. Indian. Yeah. Spanish for Scar, yeah. Uh. Oh, he was more nasty than Wayne could ever get. But then again, he was the bad guy. Oh. There were a lot of nasty Comanches in that picture. Nasty picture. <laughs> well, then again, John Wayne could get pretty nasty, too, when he wanted to be. Oh, wait a minute. Was that the picture where Jeffrey Hunter's supposed to be trading Indian rugs and he, he winds up trading for an Indian right. bride and, and he doesn't know what to do with her? That's the picture. That's a good picture. Good. That picture was great. Well, uh, I'm not used to admitting I, I like westerns. Oh, yeah? Why not, huh? Everybody should like westerns. Solve everybody's problems if they like westerns. Okay, I like westerns. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was some picture. Some picture. I was primarily involved with making comedies, but my life started to change. While I was going to school at New York University in the, in the village, I was still living at home with my parents on 253 Elizabeth Street. My brother was married. At least I had the little room to myself then. But I was still in the streets, and the life I was living was more like mean streets. So I was between the two. On the west side, I'd be at school. <laughs> I'd be at school trying to read, you know, Theodore Dreiser, Henry James. And uh, at night, I would be over in, uh, in especially on the weekends, um, in the sort of world that's depicted in mean streets in a way, and with those characters. And so changing, really changing as a person, 
and being influenced by these films from uh, France and Italy, I decided to change the style of picture I wanted to make and try to make a first feature, the first feature from a film school, and that it would be a dramatic feature, and it would be about the way we lived in the Lower East Side, the Sicilian-American neighborhood, my friends, myself, the sense of, uh, well, in the films, a sense of boredom, there's a sense of, uh, <laughs> I couldn't help that, the film is boring at times, but, uh, but a sense of uh, no direction, and not the Marty kind of no direction, the where do you want to go tonight, Marty, I don't know, where do you want to go, which is truthful, but it was a different kind of thing, and there were, the, the sexual attitudes were very uh, uh, rigid, and come from another world in a way, and there we were in the mid-60s, uh, suddenly the, 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 the whole world was going to erupt into freedom of uh, love, love, uh, free love, uh, the, the summer of love. I mean, I, you know, I, I hadn't even bought a pair of jeans, you know, I was still wearing slacks. So, <laughs> and here we are making a movie about a young man who falls in love with this woman, who um, is called a girl in the films, boys and girls, really, they're kids. And um, she comes from outside the neighborhood and can't put together the mores from outside the world with what at least he's interpreted in the world he exists in. Uh, and the re and be, be perfectly honest, somehow I just had totally fallen out of my mind. I'm sure I would have read it, you know, about it in one of his interview books, but it was one of those uh, things that in my brain, I always start with mean streets in my head because that's the birth of pure, you know, exactly what Scorsese is as a filmmaker. And so I always forget about a couple of the films that come before it. Well, so what do you think? I, I was very curious as you had never seen it before. Um, you know what? It really surprised me just how fully formed in a lot of ways the themes and the tone uh, and the voice of the characters were to his other movies. I was expecting something, I guess, way more uh, kind of uh, dull or generic or something as a first feature. I mean, obviously he's tapping uh, very much into neorealism. You definitely see the influence of Cassavetes on his work. You know, I, I know he was influenced by Cassavetes to make that first film. And Cassavetes was a fan of this one. Yeah, yeah, apparently. that's right, that's right. I, I heard some of that. That's That was pretty interesting. Um, but then there's also... Yeah, one one of the things that makes it most interesting is the clear influence of Goddard on this film, particularly this film. Uh, there's uh, there's particularly a sequence uh, with prostitutes, well, or just women. You don't really know they're prostitutes. That Harvey Keitel is having this. Fa you assume it's a fantasy. It, it could have been a real uh, sequence, but it, I don't think it is in the film. Where he's sleeping with all these gorgeous women, and he's like strapped to a bed, and there's nothing else in this warehouse. Uh, and it just the cutting and the rhythm and the jump cuts and the elliptical nature of it. It's an it's actually a really remarkable sequence uh, in any movie. It could have been in it might not even be needed in this movie. But I would say that's also the one thing that kind of debt to Goddard is also something that gets in the way a little bit. Like it made it more interesting for me as a viewer, but overall gets in the way of it being like Marty. What 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 I really think of was when he really starts nailing things. Uh, down with when we get to Mean Streets, I feel like he can, he can let go of some of that, you know, some of that uh, trying to emulate these things that he was really into at the time. But there's but there's just so much in this that surprised me how fully formed uh, a Scorsese film it was. I, I think people who haven't seen it and they're like, oh yeah, I just you know didn't know what that one. This one's this one complete. I mean, it's Harvey Keitel. It still has many of the same themes, uh, especially of Mean Streets. Uh, definitely could he feels like a pair with that film absolutely it's it's a practice swing at mean streets in a lot of ways mm -hmm. and he's doing a lot of the stuff that becomes the signature scorsese stuff and for me some of my favorite things are the way he uses music in the movie there's a great sequence at the beginning it's like a street fight 
to the song uh, Jenny Take a Ride by Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. And I always thought the music in this movie was just a predecessor to what he had, you know, what he would want to do in his other films. But, you know, in my research, you come to find out that this is actually not his first choice on this music and that Mean Streets really is the musical first choices for him. And and so Mitch Ryder and there's a great sequence. One of my favorite sequences in the movie is done to this song, uh, El Watusi by Ray Barreto, which is this great, um, it's not Calypso, it's something else, but, but it's a great party sequence. That's really cool where he's like painting across an apartment and he keeps dissolving as time is passing and the music is playing and there's some slow-mo in it. And at the end of the scene, a guy pulls out a gun and starts yeah. like shooting at some bottles. It's like a classic Scorsese scene buried in this movie, which, you know, like you say, is, is a lot of fully formed Marty doing his thing. But yeah, the, the sequence you're talking about earlier is cut to the doors song, the end. Yeah. Yeah. Very interestingly, you know, so he's really kind of finding his way. Did you know yeah. that they? I only read about this after, but that they had to go to Amsterdam to use prostitutes for that section. <laughs> I missed that part, <laughs> which is pretty wild. I mean, it, to think of this little New York movie, and then the fact that they had to travel all the way there to even film that sequence just for one sequence is pretty bizarre. But but it, it does add, it adds a real kick. I mean, the film itself is a uh, it's you know it's a very simple story. It's it's definitely engaging in the you know Italian American Catholic guilt is some of the major themes he's looking at but it's it's also pretty tender at times like you know uh, Harvey Keitel which is his film debut which is a big deal uh, is basically ro- trying to you know hang out with his friends but also trying to romance uh, you know this this girl who's a little more uh, a little more experienced than he is I guess in some ways played by Zena Bethuni uh, who I was unfamiliar with her actually um, and she's really great in it and it's basically they get to a point in their relationship where he's you know he actually is you know not wanting to sleep with her only because he wants to keep her pure but then he soon finds out she's got uh you know she reveals to him what happened to her i, I, I don't want to ruin that part because it's yeah. it's kind of integral what happened to her in the past and it opens up this can of worms for him and kind of you know kind of plays havoc on the relationship whether whether he can get over himself to actually love someone uh and kind of see past his own uh, kind of small-mindedness and upbringing with what he thinks a woman should be or, you know, especially somebody he's going to marry, you know, kind of separating uh, the mother and the whore complex a little bit, uh, which is what the fantasy scenes, I assume, are about. Yeah. And and, and so it's got, it's really simple in there and they're, you know, they, they I love the one of the first conversations they have. She's reading like a, the, a film magazine or something and they're talking about Westerns. Yeah, this and, is the clip I used to open the this section here. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's a great scene. It, it really it's evocative and it just kind of gets you to the heart and you can see the young Scorsese. I can feel him behind the camera, like a guy who's, you know, you know, early twenties loves movies just out of NYU making this movie. And so I, you know, for, for me, that's, that's pretty exciting, but it, it's, it's amazing to see someone's uh, voice just totally there. Like I would know no matter what, that's a Scorsese movie uh, from the onset with this one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely worth tracking down for people who haven't seen it. Um, and really need to watch, you know, coupled with Mean Streets, as we mentioned. Um, what uh, what what came to mind when you were trying to pair this one? What were you thinking? I got to say, this is one of the fastest ones I came up with. Uh, I was thinking 
because I don't know which island this is set on, but they kept talking about it being uh, set on, like, you know, obviously New York itself is an island, but they were talking about one part of New York uh, as an island. Uh, so I just kept thinking, you know, this is a very formed first feature uh, by a New York auteur with a very clear voice, and I instantly connected it with uh, The Unbelievable Truth by Hal Hartley. I just want to explain. There's nothing to explain. Thanks for lending me the book. I have a library card now. What are you reading? History. History is going to come to an end soon. Why are you so sure the human race is going to kill itself? Because it can. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it will. The human race has never invented anything it didn't use. True. But that's not the last word, is What's it? What's the last word? I don't know. Faith, maybe? Which one? Faith or maybe? Which is another very fine-tuned, polished debut feature by a New Yorker on an island and the male female relationship actually had a lot of a lot of things reminded me but almost an inverse with the uh the characters in a sense uh I assume you're a fan of that one absolutely yeah no we haven't talked about Hartley nearly enough on the show proper um I think we both like him I know trust has come up yeah but, trust has um, always been you know always been a favorite uh but unbelievable truth is is a really it's it's actually on HD now uh on Amazon which was nice but uh it's uh you know what's interesting about it it's because it's a a, 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 a well for two things that I, I like it's also Adrian Shelley's debut so I kind of liken that to Kaitel's uh, debut uh and at the heart of it it's about two people trying to make a romance work but when information and and backstory get in the way and in this case uh, you get uh, you get a guy coming out of jail and uh, this Josh character coming out of jail and everyone you know I think it's for manslaughter but everyone in the town keeps coming up with these more crazy concoction stories of what it was like you know a massive you know mass murderer they keep calling him and like he's got all this edge to him uh, as, he, as he gets out and he starts working at the uh, Adrian Shelley's uncle's uh, repair shop uh, garage and she she basically becomes a model and kind of leaves the town once their initially their romance doesn't work out and then she kind of returns and it's it's just it's got a lot of it's surprising and funny and weird but the main reason besides the fact that the two voices are so distinct you know between Scorsese and Hartley uh, was actually the very very heavy uh, new wave influence and Goddard influence on both films you know especially Hartley you know in those first four or five films of his you know just so many devices are taken directly from Goddard's work uh, including dance sequences and uh, the use of music you know it's it's really interesting so I just thought okay of, of any of Scorsese's films that would be the one that would make sense to pair here and and also I just like the fact that they're both because uh, this is obviously all the Long Island, part of the Long Island trilogy, right? Um, I don't know what the what's a Simple Man and, and uh, Trust, I believe, are the Long Island. Yeah, trilogy. I think yeah. so. I think, uh, so. think a box set of that's coming out soon. But uh, yeah, it's just it's just there's something really funny and strange and kind of you know I wouldn't say the tones are all at all similar between these two films, but there's something in the romance uh, and just what can get in the way of something that should be a sure thing, like when two people seem just you know perfectly destined for each other, uh, all the little things that can kind of trip you up. Yeah, no, that's a good pick, man. Um, I went for something a little older than this movie and uh, I think the black and white made me think of it and it was interesting to hear Scorsese's commentary on Mean Streets. This film actually influenced the opening shot of Mean Streets 
where uh, Kaitel, we can talk about it in a minute, but where Kaitel is looking in the mirror, and I didn't know that, hmm. picking it. So I was like, oh, well, that's weird. I guess I should have picked it for Mean Streets. But I I still think it goes better with this movie, and that's uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, oh. Carol Rice's yeah. movie from 1960. Is your mum a bit deaf, then? Yes, she is a bit. No, thanks. I don't smoke. Yeah. What's your name, then? Doc? Dory. Rotten name, ain't it? What's wrong with it? Mine's Arthur. Neither of them's up so much, but it's not our fault, is it? Where do you work, then, Doreen? Me? Harris is the airnet factory. I've been there ever since I left school. All right, I will have a fag. I'm in the engineering trade myself. Tom. Come on, drink up. Have another shandy. It's your mother's anniversary. No, thanks. What are you doing the week, Doreen? You ever got at pictures? Only on Wednesdays. Why? No, that's for me. I go on Wednesday and all. Which one do you go to? The Grand B as a rule. Well, I'll see you next Wednesday then at seven. Fast worker, aren't you? All right, but not on back row. Well, I can't see unless I sit on the back row. If I get any nearer the front, the picture gets so blurred. You want glasses by the sound of it? Well, I'll get some someday, but it make me look like a cockeyed rent collector. <laughs> I expect they do. I'll see you on Wednesday then. All right. Well, don't be late then. I won't be. But if I am, you'll just have to wait, won't you? So this one stars um, Albert Finney as a sort of rebellious uh, factory worker, hard-drinking, you know, guy who's kind of juggling a couple different relationships with uh, a woman who is married to another man but pregnant with his child and then this other girl that he meets. And, you know, he's... I don't know, there was something about the nature of the film and how it is very much of its own place that reminded me of who's that knocking which you could say the same thing about mean streets which is very much about a neighborhood about people that live in that area and so saturday night and sunday morning is something like that but Mm -hmm. obviously british and I think, I don't know, there was just something about the romance angle and the way that uh, that Albert Finney relates to the women in the movie and the way that he relates to the other men in the movie that reminded me somehow a little bit of it. I don't know. It, it was an odd thing, but it just occurred to me that I would like to see the two of them together. I don't know. It's part of that angry young man British film movement that, um, you know, Lindsay Anderson made some films for and mm-hmm. there are some others there. Um, are you a fan of this one? What do you think of it? You know, that one, I, I don't recall it very well now because I was a huge fan of those uh, early Lindsay Anderson films. Uh, obviously, uh, what was the one before If? Um, it is This Sporting Life with, um, who's the star of that? I forgot. Richard Harris. Yeah, that's right. R- the Richard Harris starring The Sporting Life by Lindsay Anderson uh, is the it's kind of my go-to from that period, but I'm sure I've seen it. I just can't recall because, you know, sometimes the British kitchen sink ones <laughs> blended together, but it, uh, you know, anything with, I love Albert Finney, so. Yeah, actually, The Sporting Life would be a good pairing with this one also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great choice. So anyway, you know, like you said, you immediately think of Mean Streets, but before Mean Streets... Marty gets a shot at making a movie with Roger Corman in a little film called Boxcar Bertha in 1972. Boxcar Bertha and her boys took what they wanted. Now, 50s. It's 50. Meet Boxcar Bertha, queen of the gun toters. Impatience, please. I think we got them. Here he is, right here. That's it, that's it. Yeah. 
lady would like to say something. Yes, I'd just like to say this is a holdup. Well, you can take it from Big Bill Shelley. Look around you. Ain't nobody gonna protect us except ourselves. Railroad took it away from us. We gotta get it back. Organize. Unionize. You don't expect strikebreakers like McIvers and their cop friends over there to look out for you, do you? How'd you get here, honey? <laughs> Box car. <laughs> well, I'll be. Hey, you look kind of hungry. Have you had any dinner? Oh, I'm as full as can be. Well, how about a little dessert? Just thank God you came down amongst union men. Most of these men have been eating wild greens since August. Violet tops. Weeds like cows eat. Well, I want something I ain't never had. How are you gonna get that? Guts and luck. <laughs> luck? Hell. Luck is being a Vanderbilt or a Carnegie. Just grabbing something good when it comes by. In the early 60s, I made these two short films at Washington Square College, NYU, that received a lot of attention, that got some awards, some scholarships, and I tried my hand at a feature based on similar characters in, in Mean Streets. And uh, the first try at it in 1965 didn't work. But from 65 to 72, uh, I worked on everything. I did documentaries, I was mainly an editor, uh, writing everything, trying to get independent films made somehow, any kind of way I can get into uh, making, making films. Uh, because it isn't the way it is now. Back in that, back then, in, in the early '60s, particularly in, in New York, you didn't make features. Um, features were made only in Los Angeles. So Haig Manujan and the other teachers at uh, professors at the, at the school were mainly gearing us to make documentaries and that sort of thing. But I needed I needed something more, and it took me it took me until 1972 doing Boxcar Bertha was when I finally found where I belonged in terms of how to make pictures. Uh, one of the things that he, that was important about Boxcar Bertha too for me was the preparation, because the one thing I learned from Roger was total preparation. Before shooting started, he came down, and I was told that you're going to shoot all the scenes with the train first four days, which is like baptism of fire, because a train when you do one take and you want to do another take. The train's got to back up. Backing up takes time. We don't have time. You go in the morning, you're already behind. There's no such thing as time. You've lost time already. Just by breathing, you're losing time. So get it over with. They'll work out a system, get the train back. And that was really, that was something I've never forgotten because the hardest shooting of the entire picture was the first four days. Yeah, I'd seen this once before a long time ago, and it was actually not because it was a Marty film. It was because I was on a Corman kick when I was probably 18, 19, and uh, didn't think that much of it at the time. Uh, you know, I'd probably just seen Bonnie and Clyde, uh, and it's certainly in that uh, vein. And maybe it was a little too slow for me. Over the years, I've developed a pretty searing crush on Barbara, young Barbara Hershey. Uh, so that that helped get me more excited to revisit it all these years later. Uh, did you? What did you think rewatching it for this? I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, um, it was definitely one that I sought out a lot when I was first getting into Scorsese because it was a little harder to see at that time. Mm. And now it's not necessarily easy to see. There's a Twilight Time Blu-ray, which I think is still in print, uh, but the DVD had been out of print. It's not really necessarily streaming anywhere, I don't think. Or maybe it is. Um, oh, I guess it is streaming. My bad. I, well, I, it was I just, started on yeah, streaming. Yeah, so anyway, I just, I for some reason, remembered it being something that I was really interested to see because I was getting into Roger Corman around that time when I was in college, and so I really wanted to see how those two things intersected, you know, Scorsese and him, and 
it's a bit of a lesser effort for him, but you can see a lot of really neat things he's doing stylistically that really stuck with me. You know, a lot of, you know, angles that he's choosing to shoot at and a lot of ways that he's artistically making what is ostensibly just a a sequel to Bloody Mama um, an interesting looking movie, you know, and he's cast it well. So, or, you know, he was given the cast, I don't know, but but having Dave, David Carradine and Barbara Hershey and Barry Primus and Bernie Casey and John Carradine all together in this movie, I think really elevates the whole thing. And I guess it's probably the first time he works with uh, Victor Argo as well, who I'm a big fan of from his uh, Abel Ferreira movies, uh, but he's he pops up in most of these early Scorsese ones after this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really well made. That's the thing. It's like a really well-constructed movie. I think it's got some great action sequences, some really brutal uh, gunshot blasts, almost Peckinpah-ish moments uh, throughout it. Uh, it's got an interesting political kind of thing that maybe weighs it down a little just because of the time period you know it's uh you know obviously big bill shelley that's his name the david carradine uh he's kind of a workers rights kind of union type guy uh and uh bertha who's just like a simple girl who's you know father's dies in the opening scene they kind of he takes her virginity and in in really what i think's the one of the best scenes in the movie uh i think that's just really well played out and the actors are just you know, uh, doing an incredibly uh, good job with making that feel realistic and kind of natural. And then they get caught up in once a, a gambler's murdered and the two of them become fugitives. And then it really, then the film kind of takes off and becomes a lovers on the run uh, type of film in the vein of so many, you know, movies uh, and noirs from that period, even though it's um, a depression era movie. Uh, I think I think everyone's great in it. I think uh, David Carradine and especially Barbara Hershey. It's definitely a, a you know one of those films we've talked about her obviously in Last Summer, you know which predates it. Uh, but she to me like definitely has a star quality at that point. But there's something it's I would say without having seen the next uh, two groupings yet in order, I would say it's probably the least Scorsese stamped movie of his of you know that i can think of in his career you know even though <laughs> even though the final sequence the the train crucifixion is basically a direct line to last temptation of christ in a lot of ways yeah well and and if we don't have this movie then we don't necessarily go to mean streets because this is the one that cassavetes did not like and notoriously told scorsese you know you just spent a year of your life making a piece of shit and oh, I thought he was he, nice about it. I thought he was the one well, who was kind of nice and everyone was, else was mean. He was nice in that I, he gave him a hug first oh. and then said, <laughs> you, you, you just spent a year, you just wasted a year of your life. You need to make, you know, because he liked Who's yeah, That Knocking yeah, so much. Yeah. So I think he was like, where's that guy? I want to see more of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think if not for, I mean, I, I, I can't say that Cassavetes is directly responsible for Mean Streets, but Cassavetes was certainly a mentor figure to him and certainly helped push him in the direction of making that very, very personal movie that, you know, becomes the sort of signature Scorsese film and sort of puts him on the path of finding his voice, you know. So I think, you know, whether I like it or not, it's a necessary stop on the way to him becoming the filmmaker we love, you know. Yeah, no, totally. And, uh, but it's, you know, I think it's worth people tracking down if they haven't seen it. It's got, like I said, I think the ending is striking. I think it it's yeah, an ending that really stays with you and does feel like pure Catholic Marty, you know? Very much. And and, and I think, like I said, the opening, some of the opening sequences are really strong too. It's it's, it's more just the tone and the world of it. Uh, so definitely seek it out if you haven't. Uh, 
where, which direction did you go? Because I, I, there's a couple of movies that would have been really obvious that I know you won't have picked, but that would be easy picks. But we've talked about before, like Emperor of the North, you know, uh, just because yep. of the setting, a depression era set, Woody Guthrie biopic, uh, last Bound summer, for glory. yeah, Bound for glory, uh, last summer, just because of, you know, Barbara movies like that. Uh, what, what, what direction did you take this in? I went for one that I hadn't seen, but that I had wanted to see for years. It's called the Bonnie Parker story. It's mm-hmm. from 1958. You didn't think he was going to scare me off with a little hot grease. How about a little hot lead? Oh, you're pretty tough cookie. Would you like another demonstration? Now listen to me, bum. If you ever touch me again, I'm going to blow you wide open. You're making a little mistake, Bonnie. I already made a little mistake, pal. The next one I make is going to be real big. I'm not going for any two-bit mug. I haven't seen it, but I've heard of it, yeah. And this one is directed by Tarantino favorite William Whitney. Hmm. Um, In fact, I might only be aware of it because I think he played it at one of the festivals in Austin at some point. Um, But it stars Dorothy Provine, or Provine, uh, who I know from Disney movies like That Darn Cat. She was Haley Mills' older sister, I think, in that movie. And then she is the sort of love interest in that Dick Van Dyke movie that I picked back in the Josh Olsen episode, uh, Never a Dull Moment. But she is the lead in this. She plays Bonnie Parker. And it's sort of a you know 30s-era Bonnie and Clyde story. I mean, it literally is. Uh, but it's there's something about this one... It's just got a scrappiness to it that, you know, it was made on a lower budget and it's just got some really great dialogue, which I'll have played a little clip of at the beginning. I can see why, you know, somebody like Tarantino would respond to it because Dorothy's like really good in the movie and she just takes no shit and she is just really effective as this character. And so it's a fun couple on the run kind of thing, you know, and uh, and she just really is a standout. So it's it's definitely worth tracking down. I think it's not really that there's like a region two DVD. It might be available on YouTube or something, you know, so it's not that easy to see. Unfortunately, I'm hoping it gets some kind of a good release at some point. Um, but who knows, maybe it'll show up on TCM underground or something like that at some point. Cool. No, yeah, I haven't seen that one, but, uh, I'm aware of Bonnie Parker. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, there was a couple that, uh, kind of came up. Obviously I was, I kind of circled, they live by night at one point by Ray other, you know, other kind of lovers on the run things. But then I had, uh, I just, one of those weird epiphanies and this, this will, most people won't have heard of this. So, uh, it won't make that much sense, but just sometimes you are thinking about, uh, a film and something just flashes into your head that you've seen and that was definitely the case here where I basically started to realize that uh you know the depression era I I then suddenly likened to like our version uh, of what kind of popped up for what I'd call poverty cinema or neorealism which kind of came out of mumblecore and this is this is the least mumblecore movie that came out of that world of filmmaking and therefore I wouldn't even call it that but it kind of came from that same period and a couple of the actors from it and it's a it's a film called Sun Don't Shine um, by director Amy Simons, who's also known as a you know actress. She's the lead in the new Pet Cemetery coming out, and she was in the last Alien movie. It's from 2012. It's a movie that really, really impressed me. I saw it at South by Southwest uh, when it first came out. 
a friend of mine was the DP and I, I that usually doesn't influence whether I like a film at all and I went to it and was just blown away by how simple and how different it was from other films that had been springing up it's it's uh, completely a lovers on the run uh, noir neo noir in a lot of ways but very minimal uh, and and just kind of very naturalistic We built our house in Mexico or North Carolina, like you wanted near your mom's. I was thinking that maybe you could plan the whole thing and you could build it, but I could be in charge of decorating it, and I'll keep it clean every day with bleach if you, if you wanted me to. I'm not gonna let anything happen to you. thinking oh yeah it's very similar to what that kind of uh poor depression era is in a lot of ways weirdly enough but but in a modern lens uh and it follows basically a character um who basically has killed uh a boyfriend or i think it's her husband uh and uh it's caitlin shield she's the she's an actress that most people would have seen a bunch of stuff uh you're next she's at the opening scene of that uh and she talks this guy kentucker oddly into helping her she puts the body in the back of the car and he basically she's in hysterics when he meets her and talks her into like driving across country down into florida into the kind of uh central florida to somebody he knows who maybe can help them get rid of the body and it's just they travel across like really beautiful kind of uh southern gothic landscapes i think and and there's parts of their past that neither are aware of and a lot of mistrust a lot of these uh noir elements you know obviously body disposal femme fatale but it's the femme fatale the big connective tissue between these two movies is is that they both are ultimately rare examples of a film being told by the femme fatale's perspective because even though boxcar bertha could be seen as a heroic character she could also be seen as a femme fatale in certain ways and so you know we see that movie play out through her vantage and in the same way we're largely seeing the movie of sun don't shine through the character of crystal who is definitely a femme fatale yet it feels different when you see a film from their perspective it feels less like they are the ones creating the undoing yeah of of the of the story and the narrative and the characters uh it's and they're both they're both ultimately road movies that show you lots of shifts in the american scenery and uh in the south and it's a movie i i really i'm really glad i get to kind of put it on a bigger stage because i think it's um it's a small movie but if you're interested in discovering uh interesting indies this one has great atmosphere i think very cool i've not seen that film nor heard of it so I think you. I think you would like it. I, I think it's. It's got all this kind of, and it's very, and it's you know, it's probably eighty minutes or something, you know. Um, nice. So I think I think that paired kind of nicely. Excellent. Um, I should mention when you were talking about they live by night. I almost I was this close to going with uh, thieves like us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I thought about that too. Yeah, same period. Just because there's there's a same period. There's a Carradine connection. You've got Keith in that movie as opposed to David in this movie. So that was really close to being my pick. Um, Anyway, uh, on to one of the big f- first one 
for him, and that, of course, is Mean Streets in 1973. What's the matter with you, Johnny? You what? kick around bullshitting people that way. If you're worried about something, you got to keep it. You don't know what happened to me. I'm so depressed about other things. I can't worry about payments, you know what I mean? I come home last Tuesday, I have my money to catch, you know? Blah, blah, bing, bing. I come at home, I ran into Jimmy Sparks. I owe Jimmy Sparks 700 like, for four months. I got to pay the guy. He lives in my building and hangs out across the street. I got to pay the guy, right? Yeah. So what happened? I had to give some to my mother, and then I wound up with 25 at the end of the week. And then what happened today, you ain't going to believe, because it's just incredible. I can't believe it myself. What? I was in a game. I was ahead like six, $700, right? You got to be kidding yeah, me. Yeah, in Hester Street. You know, you know Joey Clams? Yeah. Joey Scott, yeah. I know him too, yeah. Yeah, Joe, no, Joey Scal is Joey Clams. Right. Right. They're the same person. Yeah. Hey. Hey. So I was in there playing bankers and brokers. All of a sudden, I'm ahead like six, seven hundred dollars. I'm really winning. All of a sudden, some kid walks in and the kid yells that the bulls are come, right? Yells the cops are come. Everybody runs away. I grab all the money. I go in. It's an excuse, like, to get away. Right. You yeah. know, and I give everybody the money back later. And that way I get out. I don't have to get into the game and get a losing streak and all that. What happens? I come out of the yard, I don't know this building. Meek, I don't know nothing. Couldn't get out, it was like a box, being like this. So I gotta go back in. Not only do I go back in, but this kid says it's a false alarm. Imagine that. I want to kill this fucking kid. I mean, I, I wanna... I was so crazy, <laughs> I want to kill this kid. Meanwhile, I gotta get back in the game. Bing, 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 I lose $400. Meanwhile, Frankie Bones is over there. Frankie Bones, I own $1,300 for like seven, eight months already. He's after me, I can't even walk on Hester Street without ducking that guy. He's, he's, he's like, he's waiting for me, like I can't move, you know, and he sees that I'm losing, right? Yeah. So like, he's waiting for me here. So he's tapping me on the shoulder, he's saying, hey, tapping me like this, like a hawk. Hey, uh, get it up, you're losing now, give me some money. I says, hey, Frankie, come on, you know, uh, you know, give me a break over here, let me win some back. You know, I got debts, I mean, I'm in a big hole. He says, never mind, give me the money. I says, oh, okay, Frankie. So I gave him 200, meanwhile, I lost the deal. I go outside, I'm a little depressed now. Anyway, I want to cut the story short, because I know you don't want to hear all this. And I know, I know, I know, but I'm going to make, nah, a, to make a long story short. Anyway, I went to Al Kaplan, got a, got a new tie, got the shirt, you like the shirt? It's a nice, nice tie, but hey, come on. Michael doesn't care if you're depressed. What is he, your priest? Well, I think what was happening was in the four years that I was pulling together, who's that knocking? Don't forget, uh, there's part of you, too, that one has to balance out wanting to express yourself with cinema and and be alive in telling stories with camera and actors uh, but also balance it with um, the need to uh, uh, well, to be famous there was there was that uh, what I saw Bertolucci at that time uh, I wanted that but I had to I had to go my own way and the work has to be more important than the than being famous or being known and I, I over the over a period of years I had to learn that but uh, the problem was that at that time I was just possessed with it and I went too hard and too fast. And never forget the uh, New York Film Festival has always been great to me. Uh, when we submitted Who's That Knocking, they wrote back a note saying, you're living aesthetically beyond your means. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you really had a lot to learn about life and people. I, 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 I was burning, but I didn't have... And so, out of that, and also the incredible knowledge I learned from Corman, and that Corman was another university, combining that with what I couldn't get on film in Who's That Knocking, what I really... I mean, yeah, what I wanted to say in this... Uh, what was really, um, what was really eating away at me, my my, my life, my my uh, my memories and my emotional makeup, which had to do more with my family, and my father and his family, as his brothers, uh, was uh, was eventually to find its way into Mean Streets, and it was also about myself and my old friends, of a covering a period from 60 to 63 when I was sort of split between NYU and reading Henry James and and hanging out in after hour clubs on the weekend. Yeah, you know. 
Yeah, it's it's such an explosive, personal, you know, stylized film that you just cannot not notice this guy's voice. You know that it, yeah. it's building in in his first film for sure, but this is where it just like this feels like a fully formed uh, filmmaker who knows exactly what he wants to say and do. Uh, this is uh, Harvey Keitel and Robert De Niro utterly electric on screen together. Uh, the world feels completely real and lived in. Like you know that Marty and these guys knew the place they were reflecting on screen. Uh, this wasn't. This isn't something that just could have quickly come about right it felt like they had to like scour every inch of their their past and background and then find a way to shape it into a story that they could put up on screen yeah and he really announces his arrival with the opening scene i mean like i said it's there's a bit where harvey Keitel wakes up in the middle of the night he looks in the mirror there's a voiceover that's really interesting and then he goes to lay back down on his bed and as his head is hitting the pillow, Marty does this really awesome thing where he cuts closer oh, yeah. and closer and closer to Har- Harvey Keitel's face as his head hits the pillow. And then, boom, he kicks in with his music right out of the gate. And it's just, um, I forget which track it is. It's a Phil Spector track, it, that sort of wall of sound girl group that Marty likes, along with things like the Rolling Stones. And it just, oh, Be My Baby. Yeah. And. It's and then it, he cuts into this sort of like super eight home movie style opening, which I think is just brilliant and sets the tone and the stage for the movie so perfectly. I think that's just something that I don't I don't want to say we've lost because that's way too cynical, but I feel like people don't take as much time with the openings of their movies anymore, and you know some do, but for the most part, I really feel like there's something about setting the tone and setting up your story early in the first couple minutes of your movie up to the credits or through the credits. And, man, the great filmmakers can just really put you right where they need you to be right then, and that is incredible. Well, yeah, so much of Hollywood is dominated with exposition in that opening, like they're trying to get some story information across versus whereas you can just dive in with a character in seconds and get and get exactly what you need. Yeah, and, and he just knows instinctively how to do it, and, and it's just such a great opening. This is a movie, I have to say, and I think I may have mentioned it on the show before, but I did not care for it the first time I saw it Mm. I I had already you know gotten into Marty's films but for some reason and I couldn't tell you now what I didn't like I can't remember but it just didn't strike me. It was a movie where I was like, I don't understand, or maybe it was... Well, it's kind it of random. Chill. When you think about yeah. the plot, it, things happen in a random way, the way their lives are happening, so it's not as easy a movie to enjoy as, as something that has a clear trajectory. Well, and I could just tell... I think, you know, I hadn't seen enough film noir. I hadn't seen enough movies where you're on kind of a downward trajectory with a character and... It's just something you have to ride out, basically. And I think the Johnny Boy character was difficult for me because I was just like, man, he's just an asshole. Why is he doing what he's doing? I don't understand. And why is Harvey Keitel continue to kind of try and look out for him? Mm -hmm. And it's taken me multiple viewings to ultimately understand the complicated dynamics at play with these characters and why they care about each other and why they keep each other in those orbits. And it's started to all make sense to me finally. 
And yeah, hearing Scorsese talk about this movie and how personal it was to him and how he was basically living the Harvey Keitel life. Not exactly, but he was splitting his time between going to Washington Square College, you know, in Greenwich Village and living in his neighborhood, which is very much like this neighborhood. And so he was, you know, everyone had a connection with mob, right? Like some sort of connection, even if it's minor, right? A favor or something. Yeah. And his dad, I think his dad, he said his dad had gotten his job through some kind of mob connect. And so his dad was basically, not enslaved by the mob, but like was indebted to them for life. Mm. And he basically told Marty, like, stay away from certain kinds of people because you can get yourself caught up in this thing and you won't even know that it's happened. And you can kind of see what he's talking about a little bit within this movie, you know, just kind of getting carried away, you know, borrowing money or whatever. And it leads you to trouble, to a hole that you basically can't dig yourself out of. And you're either going to end up dead or you're going to end up owing somebody big time and maybe never being able to pay it off. So, yeah, it was really interesting to think about that and to hear him talk about the double life, you know, and how that influenced where this movie came from for him. Yeah, and this one's about more or less small time hoods, too. So it's like guys who are trying to move up the ladder uh, Kaitel's got a better chance of it, but he's a really he's a pretty nice guy, and maybe doesn't have the edge needed, you know, to make it in that world. He's, he's he d- takes collections, or uh, whereas De Niro's character, uh, there's something wrong with you know, Johnny Boy is just off. Like there's something, and everyone's most of us have had a friend that they can recognize in Johnny Boy, and that might be part of the reason sometimes it's uncomfortable to watch because you see that person that you love but is gonna make your life worse or harder for to be around them uh and it could be a friend who's an addict or something like that but he there's just something off about johnny boy maybe psychotic maybe i I don't even know if it's that far but uh there's just something off about him and uh he he's always in debt and he's a gambler and he's always avoiding people and there's a scene where he just puts a little bomb in a mailbox for no reason at all and just runs along the street and you're like oh jesus christ like this and guy. that's the introduction. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like who you know this guy. Uh and you know, I gotta say, this is a dangerous performance. Like De Niro feels dang- you don't know what he's gonna do next, you know? He, he just feels totally spontaneous and, and it's just one of those performances that you you can't really forget him. Uh and it actually feels quite different than a lot of his other roles to me. Whereas, you know, Kaitel's really grounded in it and uh there's a there's a one you know, one sequence that always stands out and you know, I feel like Marty has kind of drawn from, which is the scene where Keitel's getting drunk, you know, and the camera's attached to him. Uh, what oh, we, I love it. Yeah, what would later be known like as the Requiem for a Dream Shot, right? But back then it was, <laughs> Marty was way ahead of it, where the camera's literally attached to Keitel as he's walking around this party. Uh, I can't remember which song it is. It's a great track, and it's... It's Rolling Stones. I gotta... Mm, I can't quite remember yeah. either. Um, and but, as he yeah, gets drunker, he, he starts to slowly fade, and the song keeps going. And you know, he falls on his side, and the you know the camera goes with him. It's it's just yeah. such a great way of externalizing a internal state, like with a camera shot. Like they're actually showing you, in a sense, what it feels like to be inside the way Kaitel's feeling in that moment, but doing it with a, a just a shot of Kaitel. And I thought that that was genius and using the music. It's it's all the things that I've come to you know love about what Marty's able to do in his movies. Yeah, and it was interesting. I was listening to a talk that he did after a screening at Lincoln Center in, I think, 2012 or something, and the moderator was asking about the use of music, and he was saying, like, 
you know, it's an early film and Marty seemed to be angling for it being one of the earliest films to use that kind of music. I mean, they both pointed to easy rider as another movie that used popular music. And Mm -hmm. then of course, like something like blackboard jungle uses rock around the clock at the opening of it. And then of course, American graffiti, which I think came out after this, um, you know, wall to wall popular music, but American graffiti feels like they're listening to it on the radio. You know, it feels like part of that part of the narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. It's definitely coming from the locations more than the characters or more than the director. I mean, it ultimately is about what George Lucas was listening to when he wrote the movie, but, um, but yeah, so I just think it's really interesting that Marty, I hadn't thought about it in the context of being a, a forerunner for, using popular music in cinema like he is kind of because i always associate that with him but i hadn't thought about him as being one of the instigators one of the first people to do it and man oh man does it it's one of my favorite things in all of cinema is using a popular song i mean music and image together is one of my favorite things but popular music playing over an image is just so incredible and one of the reasons i became a music supervisor i mean these are the things that totally stand out to me but I also think it's interesting that Scorsese and Lucas and Milius would all make this movie you know like Lucas makes American Graffiti Milius makes Big Wednesday it's kind of their like coming of age movie you know like it's just a thing that they did I just think that's well, it's also a period too. where music meant something I think I mean you yeah know, I think music was at its apex as well and as was kind of new cinema and new Hollywood those two things were just both hitting you know you had all these incredible you know in the post you're just in the post of the early Beatles and you're in the middle of the Rolling Stones and it's just like to me it must have been such an exciting a lifetime to want to to hear that new record and then want to put it in your movie uh, but he also it's all it's always for emotion he's always using music for emotion he's using music for feeling he's using it in contrast to what you're watching you know it's it's always got that purpose it doesn't just feel like you're padding a soundtrack or something which is what you know American Graffiti that it's being used as the soundtrack to the world you know this is yeah. this is different and I think that's what makes it so creative. Um, Absolutely. There's a couple other fun he, things. Oh, sorry. Well, I was going to just say he he has this mix of the popular music, the girl group stuff, and then he's got some like opera stuff. And he had one other thing that he said that I just wanted to note in that Q&A where he's talking about growing up in his neighborhood in New York City where it's really hot and everybody had their windows open and so you were just getting music drifting in and out from all over the place. And so there's no, you don't have any control over that. And it just happens. So you're hearing older people playing older music. You're hearing new music on the radio. And I feel like his sensibility is, is something that is, comes out of that. And I think that's really an interesting way because um, kids nowadays, like you, like outside of a grocery store, you don't have to listen to any music you don't want to. You can listen to anything you want, anytime you want. And so you're totally in control, which in a way is kind of a bummer because you're not necessarily getting exposed to new music unless you're seeking it out. I mean, and music used to, to be radio. communal. Uh, yeah. Now so it's this is a whole plugs in their iPad and is in their iPod yeah. as an own world. 
yeah. So anyway, Marty is a product of that, and I think that's really interesting. But sorry, what else were you gonna say? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say there's a couple other fun things about the movie that I love. The uh, especially watching it again, things I was looking for this time was the the David Carradine cameo. I thought it was just gold. Now, like as the guy who just gets crazy, you know, he's crazy drunk in this bar, and then somebody comes in to assassinate him, and he just yeah, that... and he just keeps going even though he's been shot multiple times. It's an amazing uh, sequence. Yeah. It's fantastic. It feels out of control. Like it's one of those sequences you're like, shit, I, is the, the camera still rolling? Because I feel like it was meant to, be, <laughs> you feel like the director said cut, but the scene just keeps going. Um, and uh, I also think uh, somebody, somebody who doesn't get enough credit because it is such a guy movie is Amy Robinson as the uh, his uh, lover who has epilepsy, but she's also the cousin of Johnny Boy, which is De Niro's character. And she's having this relationship with uh, Keitel. And again, it's another really tender romance in a lot of ways. Like it's, it's very real like she lives across you know she, he can see her apartment from his apartment and they're not really meant to be together and there's you know family people would would have issues with them being together as well as jenny boy and there's just something about it that feels really nuanced and and real and uh, her performance is really good in this film too yeah and then she would go on to be a great film producer um she's a great actress and she does wonderfully in this role but if not for her we don't necessarily have movies like chilly scenes of winter uh, especially, oh, I didn't realize she produced that one. Yeah, she and Griffin Dunn, I think, were the ones who found that source novel and then created their production company with um, the guy from Animal House, whose name I'm forgetting right now. He plays Niedermeyer. Um, and then they produced Baby It's You. Of course, they would produce After Hours, Running on Empty, uh, White Palace. Oh, nice. I'm trying to think. There's a couple other interesting ones in here. But anyway, she she's part of the driving force between some of my favorite films of the next decade. So beyond ha- giving a great performance, I have to give her credit for, you know, being behind getting the material and producing these great movies beyond this one. Well, and that illustrates the creative energy in these that was a, a foot in this time period and in these locations, like the fact that, you know, De Niro is coming over from some De Palma films, like, oh, De Palma is now lending out his actor to, to Scorsese and, and somebody, you know, and the way they're all meeting at parties and just the way this is all taking place. These people all go on to have these incredible careers. It's, it was such a hotbed uh, for creativity in this time. And just so much, obviously, if you know the Raging Bull, the Easy Rider t- time period, uh, there was so much going on in that uh, in that film. Absolutely. Uh, so what do you think? What'd you go with for this one to pair? Um, what I went with, this is probably the most, uh, will probably be even the least known uh, in this country, even those movies, <sighs> man. Uh, so I, my, my connection is, is the Johnny boy and the world and how family slash friends can kind of suck you under, uh, especially if you have the wrong one. Uh, this is a film called the boys and it's directed by Rowan Woods from 98. It's Australian. It's probably one of the most tense movies I've ever seen in my life. It's, it's, it's if in Australia, it's definitely got a reputation of being one of the kind of darkest, uh, Australian films and just also one of the best made. They're not dogs. Tell you one thing, as long as they're under this roof, they'll do as they're told. We're all gods. We're all gods in our own world. So, how about playing out some of those sexy dreams you told me you had? Sure. Whatever you like. 
These are the worlds that we've made. The Rowan Woods went on to make another really strong Australian film with Kate Blanchett called Littlefish, which is I also really recommend. Uh, and Hugo Weaving as a heroin addict. Um, but this one is uh, it just reminds me the way he treats Sydney in this movie, even though this was based on a stage play. Uh, the way he kind of treats it reminds me of the way that Marty's treating uh, New York, that a person who really knows the kind of people. Uh, who live in this environment and and how they can affect each other but it's basically um uh, the actor who just gives as good a performance as de niro does in uh mean streets david wenham which is just shocking gives the one of the darkest performances where like you're actually while watching it just a little scared of him because of his unpredictability and his ability to play kind of power games and manipulate people but david wenham in america he always plays these kind of goofy characters he's in uh, van helsing playing kind of the assistant he's kind of a, a goofy character in that he's a goofy character in um uh, Moulin Rouge you know he's he's the kind of love interest in that who's just totally treated as a joke so it's really crazy when you see this movie to think that that guy's career would be playing characters that are very light because this is such an intense performance he's basically a character Brett Sprague uh, fairly violent criminal who's released on parole after serving an assault and he comes back to his family house uh, where he reconnects with his bro- two brothers and his girlfriend played by um tony collette yeah yeah uh his girlfriend tony collette uh in an early role for her uh and you know everyone kind of waits on his every word and you you see this you know he's got this kind of dangerous charm but he also seems everyone's a little intimidated and scared but he's really good at talking people into things uh and and kind of getting his his brothers who aren't nearly as bad as him but getting them to do bad things and the the format of the film uh basically is leading up to this dark event that's gonna uh become which was based on the abduction uh and murder of a true story it was based on of a um of a nurse um but it's not completely literal the whole story isn't completely literal a true story and it just it just shows them hanging out at their house and drinking beer and kind of how they're all kind of how he's kind of getting into all of their heads and then the him and his brothers in this car at night just watching people and then spotting this woman as she walks out and there's just something about this film that i can it's really just an incredibly tense building uh movie that i i wish more people would see here because it's really a classic uh in that part of the world it's uh, i know madman which is australian dvd company has just put out an hd version of this uh and i couldn't find it streaming anywhere here so it's probably something you'd have to buy uh, you know uh from a different country but it just the it really looks at the way family and crime and the way you're brought up and poverty you know being slightly uh in the kind of poorer uh neighborhoods and what you have to do to kind of get ahead what that can do to somebody uh but man it's it it gets dark and the other thing it does that reminded me of this movie and the reason i wanted to pair it was uh the way it uses music in this case it's a soundtrack but it's um this improv group from australia called the necks and they're pretty popular down there and they this is the first time they'd ever been used for a soundtrack and it's it's just got this brilliant emotional tension that just goes from the start to the end of this movie uh this i can't say enough about this this film it's it's really top notch and it really reminded me while i was watching again this is one i wasn't wouldn't have even thought about this movie but watching uh watching johnny boy 
and that kind of unpredictable, dangerous, anything could happen in the next beat uh, really straight away brought this movie into uh, my mind. Very cool. Another one that I'm not, I don't think I'm aware of. I don't think I've seen it. Maybe... In my VHS days, it, it would have been, it would have been at your video store on VHS. I'm sure of that, but I don't know if yeah. it ever made the leap onto when DVDs started here. Um, he's a director who should have gone on to bigger things here because his first two features are so strong. Did a lot of TV uh, in Australia. I'm surprised he hasn't made a bigger American film. Excellent. Well, I got to check this one out. Um, I went with one of my favorite filmmakers, period, um, and that is Elaine May. Uh, I went with her film Mikey and Nikki from 1976. Oh, yeah. Speaking of John Cassavetes. Come on. Stop fucking yourself up. You know, I don't shave. Did you know that? I don't want to take care of myself. I think if I don't take care of myself and I sit still and I don't move, maybe they'll forget about me. But then I'm, I'm scared of that, too, because I think maybe if I sit there too long, maybe... When I want to move, I won't be able to move. You sound like you're ready for a straitjacket. I'm going to die. Come on. You're not going to die. You see the picture of Ed Lipsky in the paper? You see it on Tuesday? In Tuesday's paper? Yeah, that was terrible. He was all shot up. His neck was broken. You see that? You know, nobody thought you had anything to do with Lipsky, Nick. You've been the clear. There's a contract on. There's a contract on Ed Lipsky and me. I know that for a fact. Resnick put it out. I know it for a fact. They're going to kill me, Nick. They're going to kill me. You are not going to die. I mean, even if somebody wants to kill you, that doesn't mean you're going to die. I want you to stop. Yeah, there we go. I had to go with the line. I mean, there's definitely similarities outside of the Cassavetes connection, you know, but Cassavetes was a helpful thing that made me think of wanting to pair this with that. And um, the, the story is basically that uh, it's set in Philadelphia and there's like... I think Cassavetes plays like a small time bookie who has, I don't know if he did it on purpose or if I can't remember if he did it on purpose or not, but he's stolen some mob money and he's sort of hiding out and he calls uh, a childhood friend of his in sort of a panic, a paranoid panic, you know, they're coming to kill me, you know, blah, 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 to come and, you know, help him out, you know to come to his aid as it were and that character is played by Peter Falk so what you have is a movie that feels very much of a similar cloth to a Cassavetes film of this period but Elaine May is the writer director on it so you know there's something else there I mean the energy between Falk and Cassavetes is remarkable <laughs> yeah well it's, you, you see their history together when you watch it it's amazing yeah absolutely and it feels like a movie that's being improvised uh, moment to moment you know like Cassavetes will say things like they'll just be talking and he'll be like I want to go to a movie let's go to a movie. you know there's a midnight there's a movie, all night movie theater that's playing some movies let's go now and so he's very manic in his energy but it also feels 
it feels like a, a real like real characters like real people sort of rich characters friends that you can tell know each other um and they have that familiarity and that comes obviously from Falk and Cassavetes knowing each other the way that they did so there's just it's basically them hanging out for the evening and then some other things start to develop there's a Ned Beatty character uh that comes into play and a couple other characters including Peter Falk's wife um that come in but mostly it's just Falk and Cassavetes and this movie was just recently announced by Criterion they're doing a blu-ray of it so that's exciting for people who haven't seen it, it is on Filmstruck. That's where I rewatched it. It was kind of hard to see for a little while, but uh, thankfully the uh, Criterion's made it more available. I wish that they would make The Heartbreak Kid a little bit more available. I've talked about that on the show mm-hmm, in our romance yeah. episode. And uh, A New Leaf has a nice Blu-ray from all of films, but those three movies uh, I think are representative of... A remarkable career. I mean, she's obviously done stuff beyond those three, but I think just those three show such incredible promise as a filmmaker that it's a bummer she's not more heralded along with, you know, some of the movie brat men that we talk about from this period because she's incredible. She's just so good at what she does. And yeah, this movie just has a vibrancy to it, an energy, a life that uh, is... I don't know, unlike most most films of this period. And it has a lot to do with Cassavetes and Falk, but clearly there's something going on with the collaboration, I think, that makes it interesting. But yeah, so there's there's a milieu of like small time criminals and friends and troubled friends that I thought thematically linked this to Mean Streets as well. So it seems like a good uh you know movie to go with it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I love how sprawling it is, and just <laughs> you just never know what's about to happen in that film. Uh, beat Absolutely. to beat, it's great. Um, well, that brings us to what I got to say was the surprise of the this first block for me. Uh, I, I, I I thought I was sure I'd seen Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore. This is 1974, but you know what I realized is I'm, I'm I had seen the cover a million times, and I had seen uh, <laughs> obviously Mel's Diner. I grew up on Mel's Diner. And in my brain, that's what Alice doesn't live here anymore was. And if I did see it, it was like watching a clean slate this time. This film really impressed me. Uh, I've got to say, I think it's one of the gems of his filmography that uh, people don't talk about now as much. Obviously, it made... Uh, a good splash for him at the time, and especially, uh, you know, w- winning Ellen Burstyn the Oscar. So on the way back to the motel, I saw the Waitress Wanted sign, and I said, well, why not? So I took this job. Well, let me give you a hint. Honey, unbutton that top button. Really? Yeah. If you bend over, that's how you get more tips when you're working. You're kidding. I'm not kidding. I got $50 last week. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Honey, forget what I said. You do that, and I'm never going to get a tip again. <laughs> oh, you're so funny. <sighs> Boy, you really need someone to talk to, don't you? Uh-huh. You know, I bet you sure get lonesome, don't you? Yeah. I miss my friend B. What time is it now? About two, three? Exactly. 
How'd you know that? Oh, I can feel it. B is now watching all my children. There's this character on the show named Jeff, and she's just madly in love with him. Hey, you want me to fix you up with somebody? I know a lot of guys in this town, they'd fall down over you, their brains would fall out, and they'd fraud at the mouth. <laughs> well, that sounds attractive. Uh -huh. Thanks a lot, but I don't think so. Besides, I kind of got my eye on Daddy Duke. <laughs> <laughs> well, honey, if you change your mind, just let me know. I sure will. When Ellen Burstyn was here, we talked about Alice doesn't live here anymore. I believe that Ellen was uh, responsible for you oh, yes. directing that film. How did it yeah. happen? Well, she was looking, uh, she had just done The Exorcist, and uh, Warner Brothers was very high on her. She was excellent in the film. Then Francis Coppola had just seen Mean Streets, and he told her, you've got to see this kid. I'm told that when uh, Ellen met with you, she said, what do you know about women? I said, absolutely nothing, but I'd hope to learn. I think that in that film, her range is astonishing. Oh, yeah. We had a great time with that because she's really tough, fearless, and was open to anything with a great sense of humor. She said, of all the directors I've worked with, Marty is best at providing the environment where actors can do their best work. He'll say, okay, we know what the scene is about, now what's it going to be? And the actors will start improvising. Do you like to use improvisation a great deal? Uh, yes. In... Uh Alice, we did a great deal of it, and it was really influenced from Cassavetes after seeing Shadows and, and being around John yeah. Cassavetes a lot. Uh, I was really influenced by, by his life that he put on screen, but also in certain moments of American movies that Hawks created, and also John Ford created a certain camaraderie of the family in John Ford films. And there's a little girl in the film who plays the friend of yes. Ellen's son. Who is Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. When she came in the room for the audition, sat down, I said, uh, where you been? So I've been working on some commercials. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. See, this kid is tough. Ellen won the Academy Award for this picture. Who accepted her Academy uh, Award? She asked me to accept it that night. She was doing um, uh, Same Time Next Year, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was sort of embarrassed. She asked me to thank myself. <laughs> so I did. But I feel like now people rarely discuss this film and his filmography, and it is a beautifully realized film the the main thing i took away from this movie was it was i really thought it was one of the best films i've ever seen about motherhood and and not generic motherhood as in you know this is a single mom but she's also still a woman not just a mother she's trying to have a looking to kickstart her singing career at 42 with her you know 10 year old son while trying to move across you know after her husband dies moving across uh trying to move home to california she's uh also having to work jobs and she's also having to date men because she still has a sexual life, you know, and, and all these complications and how all these things intersect are so well realized that it's actually, to be perfectly honest, a little shocking that it's a Scorsese movie in some ways, even though I see all those hints in, in the relationships in his other movies. But he's never done an entire movie that is just that. It is just the relationship, uh, the, the various relationships in these quieter moments and this very, um, very observational uh, style of filmmaking and funny and lived in and I really think it's a gem like a total gem yeah this was another one like boxcar where it was a little trickier to see on you know it had been re released on VHS by Warner Brothers but 
it just wasn't one that was in your average video store when I was seeking it out in college. And so when I finally got to see it, especially because it starts with this really stylish Wizard of Oz type. Yeah, that's very strange opening, but it's cool once you yeah. realize what it references. Yeah, no, it's super neat. And yeah, she's one of my favorite actresses of all time and just an incredible performer. Has been from The Exorcist, you know, through this film. Through Last Picture Show, I love her in Last Picture Show. Last Picture Show, she's great. She's great in King of Marvin Gardens, up to Requiem for a Dream. I mean, she is... Yeah just an incredible actor and it's a really great movie that allows her to shine and yeah I mean it's just she's cashing in her exorcist sort of chip to make this movie I mean she's been given the credibility to make something as I don't want to say non-commercial but it's not necessarily a movie that gets made easily even no. in 1974, right? Yeah, too observational. So, there's not a strict plot. Like, there's no real goal. Like, yes, the goal is for them to go home to her home, but of course, that's compromised along all the uh, by life along the way, right? Um, yeah, no, I think I think it's a really unique uh, film in that way, and I think she was doing Exorcist when she got this material, right? Like, I don't think she had finished. Uh, quite finished Exorcist when the, when she was cast in this. I think she was looking for something. Uh, I think she was told, you know, one of the interviews I saw with her where she was, you know, the feminist movement was in full swing and, and she just looked around and they weren't happy with, she wasn't happy and her and her friends weren't happy with the way they were being portrayed in movies and, and the kind of uh, the life situations that they found themselves in weren't being represented. And then suddenly this role came along where she could show all these different sides to a person. It's It's a very complex character you you see so many different sides i guess it, it's that brilliant example of when i was talking about the mother and the whore complex which is a male complex right projected onto woman well what you see here is how it's in reality it's all these things and much more combined into one human being and that's why it's complicated there's all these different sides to a person and the idea of trying to separate that is unhealthy and impossible because they're just humans right so i think she really gets to show all these different facets to herself uh and just the opening not the opening scene, but very soon after with her and her son after uh, after her husband uh, passes away in the opening sequence when they're in the car driving together and he keeps asking if they're there yet. It's just one of the greatest scenes. Like, honestly, if you just watched one scene, watch that scene and it's just so well realized and the performances are, it's just, you will feel like you've seen or experienced that exact moment and it's just perfect. Uh, yeah. and, there, and there's so many of them throughout this movie. Well, yeah, absolutely. You've got an incredible, the kid is great and he ends up running into Jodie Foster who plays a very small supporting role which would lead to her in some ways lead to her role in Taxi Driver she's great she's a bad girl right she's uh, (laughs) shoplifting and doing all sorts of stuff yeah She's great. Um, but then you've got Harvey Keitel in a, s- a smaller role. But pretty intense. Yeah. Very intense. Uh, Chris Christopherson is sort of the love interest in the film. And I think the best thing he's ever done, honestly. Yeah. I, he, I've loved him in a lot of things, great. but I think in this he's effortless and he feels completely like a real guy. Like I feel like yeah. that must have been pretty close to him. 
because it just he, he show, you see a bit of his volatile side you know he gets a little it's like this is about a real dude who falls in love with a woman even though it's going to be a pain in the ass <laughs> you know what i mean like uh yeah. he totally loves her even though it's not going to be easy and uh he's got to put up with this kid but it's completely the kid's kind of a spoiled brat yeah. and and that was one of my problems the first time i watched it but yeah this time it's each successive time i'm i'm more invested in the movie and her performance but i think the real thing that i connect to is the stuff she does with diane ladd oh yeah flow um, flow is who, so good that character. the original flow and this is laura dern's mom who was incredible in wild at heart among other things but she is so good in this movie as flow yeah. and they have an initial sort of butting of heads and then they totally bond with each other and their scenes together are some of my favorite scenes in the movie they just really it's again it's sad to say but there weren't enough films then or now that just allow women to have a moment and you know yes they are in some ways talking about relating to men or bitching about men but they are also having a genuine moment between the two of them and it's shocking how few of those we get in most movies nowadays, you know? Yeah, and there's these facades that sometimes maybe get in the way of a woman becoming friends, especially in this era of filmmaking and maybe life. I, I'm not a woman, so I wouldn't know, but it, it's like it takes a while for that friendship to bloom because of that. And then at a certain point, something's dropped where they realize this, there's no competition. They're, they're just, they can just talk openly. And I think that's the scene that really, that you're probably talking about outside. Uh, yeah. And it's really something. You, you see these little moments of, that's what I mean by, uh, it's easily the most observation movie he's ever made obviously I, that's not usually what he's known for he has great observant moments but usually in a very you know uh, forward momentum moving kind of filmmaking uh, but this one takes its time and lets just uh, simple moments be where the drama kind of uh, uh, actually comes and grows from uh, you know Kaitel as a kind of cowboy lover he's pretty charming at first and then becomes very volatile as it goes uh, is interesting but one thing that really struck me is how much of an influence it felt like it must have been on boyhood uh by link ladder because i just the way it feels and just the setting and just the the nuances of the stepfathers you know all of that just i could just totally see this as an influence on that film absolutely but yeah this is one i I, and the mel diner stuff is pure gold like everything that happens at the diner and then all if you're like us and you grew up on the show you'll suddenly go oh wow it'll feel familiar suddenly but different um you know it was of course the uh, starting point for that so yeah I, i think this is this is the gem of the kind of lesser uh, watch now or at least lesser discussed now Scorsese from this period in my opinion yeah I'm with you so what did uh, what do you think what what goes with this one um, a couple of things popped up in my head the first one I was just playing with was uh, gas food lodging it was in my brain only because it starts off in New Mexico uh, as well but uh, I actually went with something that's very different uh, filmmaking wise but the feeling that I got when this movie ended instantly led me to uh, a film that I had a huge impact on me when I first saw it and I didn't want to watch it at all because it just sounds like the most boring movie ever made and yet it's devastatingly beautiful and that is I Remember Mama by George Stevens from 1948 For as long as I could remember the house on the Larkin Street Hill had been home Papa and Mama had both been born in Norway All of us were born here Mel's the oldest My sister Christine and the littlest sister, Dagmar. But first and foremost, I remember Mama, with her very secret bank account and a wide open heart for other people's troubles. Marta, I want to get married. 
Katerina is wonderful. Yeah, I think it is. Who is Mr. Torkelson? From the funeral parlor. Will you help me tell the others? And uh, Uncle Chris? But so what is? What do you want? Well, it, it was a question of, of Trina's dowry. Her what? Dowry. It's it's one of those films that just packs an absolute nostalgic wallop. I've never recommended a, this film to someone who didn't come back saying it was one of the best things they've ever seen in their life because it's just got it's just something about its simplicity and Irene Dunn plays the uh, titular character Mama. Uh, it's a it's a Norwegian immigrant family post World War One in San Francisco. It's a beautiful San Francisco movie, so it's all set in San Francisco and all of the life revolves around mama and her kids and the way she budgets and you know the the way she keeps her family together and her kids growing up um barbara bel Geddes is one of her kids uh and she is also the narrator of the film and she's excellent uh it was a play it was a book it was lots of you know there was lots of other forms obviously if you listen to the show you know i'm a, a big fan of george stevens based you know on a, my favorite film place in the sun but this film emotionally is its equal for sure it sounds every Everything about it on paper should be dull. You know, really, with a title like that, I had no interest in watching again. This is another one I saw in my class with uh, Hank Moonjean, the uh, producer of Sharky's Machine. So again, it was one that I kind of sat down and was like, okay, what's this going to be? And afterwards, I was like, oh my God, I think I was, you know, I'm sure I was bawling. And it's it's incredibly, it's nostalgic in that way that I think it speaks to anyone who's ever, you know, had the love of a mother in their life. And so for me, the connection of these two films that have very different takes and different types of um, mother figure, but are both equally... Uh, I think rich and very you know this is a black and white film uh, studio picture it's an RKO film but then I started uh, so that was my regardless that would have been my connector and I'm I'm just a huge fan of it but um, then I started uh, just today some of the research I did which I just did not put together which I love that this is a connector and it makes me so happy is we were talking a lot about um, you know trying to connect uh, especially with Taxi Driver, uh, some horror films, because Marty had talked about the influence horror, but specifically, you know, uh, both of us obviously have, you know, great love for Val Luton's work, as does Marty. And so I kept thinking about, you know, various Val Luton pictures. So I, I started researching this, and this blew my mind. I had no idea that the screenplay of I Remember Mama is written by DeWitt Bodine, who also wrote the no screenplay way. yeah, of Cat People, Curse of the Cat People, and Seventh Victim. And Seventh wow. Victim, as we'll, when we get to Taxi Driver, was one of the ones I was very much thinking, and I'll explain why, of pairing with uh, Taxi Driver. So that's huge. And he won the Oscar. I'm, I think he might have won an Oscar for this. Uh, it's an RKO picture. And then suddenly I keep diving deeper. My favorite of all of Luden's cinematographers, Nicholas Masaraka, was the DP of this as well. Oh, then wow. keeps coming. Roy Webb, who did most of the music for Val Luden's film, did the music for this. So it's like literally this team, and it and it couldn't be less Val Luden-y. It's not at all. I mean, it's a George Stevens picture. It, it, it feels like a big George Stevens movie, and yet it has all these talented stable of of people who are in the RKO B division with Luden on a, on this much bigger canvas and it's uh so it's it, and I only just realized this today so this is for me this is kind of exciting because it's like oh wow so maybe that has something to do with the same thing I'm drawn to with Curse of the Cat people this thing that this 
because I think they're similar. Those two I could see. Chris the Cat People and I Remember Mama. I can see why there's a feeling in those two movies that is similar. But uh, so that makes me really happy to have discovered that about DeWitt Bodine. And other things that are, you know, there's a lot of deep staging in this overlapping dialogue, very like what Altman was going for, but done much earlier. And these just everyday nuances of family life just make it totally special and nostalgic. And it's, it's one I always feel great about when people uh, watch it for the first time. It's like the perfect, you know, Thanksgiving or Mother's Mother's Day or those kind of periods, you know, uh, movies. Nice. I haven't seen it, and I think I've waited it like you for the, the reason of the title for a long time, which yeah, is no, really it's... stupid and shallow on my part. Watch it with I your wife, Irene and Dunn. you will love it. You will, you yeah. will, you will walk away going, okay. And it has a really pretty lame trailer as well. I, 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 re- I didn't have time to rewatch the film, um, but it is it is streaming. But I, uh, I looked it up, and I, when I was watching trailers, like, eh, that wouldn't sell me on it either. So you just have to take a risk on this one. Yeah, I'll buy that. I mean, I love George Stevens, and spoiler alert, we're going to circle back to him in a, in a Ooh, couple movies here. Excellent, excellent. Um, so I also went with a classic black and white film for this. I went with uh, Barbara Stanwyck movie called My Reputation from Ooh, 1946. You look tired, Jess. Mm. I needed that. Two more, please. Yes, ma'am. Well, did the boys get off all in one piece? Yes, they've gone. Oh, Jenna, isn't that awful the way things happen between parents and children? You bring them into the world, they're yours. They depend on you for everything. But so soon it changes. They start to pull away and you have to sit tight and let them. If you don't, it ends up like mother and me. You were certainly a model child. I've been rotten to her lately. I could kill myself for snapping at her. I, I know how lonely she is, but... She's got to accept it, just as you've had to accept the boys leaving. I'm accepting it, but I'm not liking it, I can tell you that. Phyllis. Hmm? I haven't seen her since she got back from Reno. I'm afraid Phyllis is taking her freedom a little too seriously. Baby told me about her. Oh, Jenna. Women on the loose can be such a mess. I know. How do I know I won't be like that in a year or so? Ever since I was 17, Paul's been my entire life. Before that, it was mother. Recently, it's been the boys. Now what do I do when I have to start out from scratch? I'm scared, Jenna. Scared to death. Yeah, this is a this is a really neat movie. It's it's akin to something like All That Heaven Allows before All That Heaven Allows, mm. because you have a woman who is recently widowed, and she meets this army major while on a skiing trip with some friends, and despite sort of the pressures of her friends and family to not become romantically involved with him, she does anyway. Like he's he's sort of a He's sort of a free spirit. Like he, he's not necessarily, I can't remember if he's been married before, but he's just got a very like, who gives a shit what they say kind of attitude about everything. And I think she's so used to living in this suburban community with her friends where everybody is sort of judging everybody and everything is status quo. And to go outside that is just unheard of. And, of course, it's just one of those really sort of doomed romance films where, you know, she's got two kids. I think she's got two boys. I'm trying to remember how many kids she has. Yeah, two boys. And you can just tell that the family's not necessarily in favor of this romance and her friends aren't. And it's seen as, like, 
some kind of slight to her husband's memory when in effect it's just you know there's no reason she shouldn't be able to move on if she she wants to and yeah so it's just and Stanwick is incredible in it it's very emotional and um the guy who plays the major uh is George Brent and he's really good he's just really they have a great like sort of early romantic not quite meet cute but sort of set up and I don't know I just really like the way that this movie plays out and and it's just one of my favorite Barbara Stanwyck performances and it's it's a very you know strong sort of female role and she had a lot of those yeah I don't know I mean the other one I would I would almost went to was something like Stella Dallas Mm -hmm. which I think is really great a total tearjerker to this day but yeah, this one really stands out for me. It's a it's a prime period Warner Brothers movie from 1946, and uh, definitely worth a look. Yeah, no, that sounds. And you you even mentioning Barbara Stanwyck made my brain go noir, and then another movie that just instantly jumped in that would be quite a funny pairing to that would be Mildred Pierce because you'd have <laughs> you know you have the the mother with the daughter who <laughs> things go very differently in that storyline. Uh, unfortunately, much a darker vision, but uh, another great movie. Uh, yeah, That's that sounds great. good. I got to see that one. Um, well, then he takes the cachet, and, and he did get really great uh, reception to this film. I mean, this this film was you know obviously it's not a really a box office uh, type movie, but in terms of performance, uh, and obviously made people uh, trust him as a director. Uh, that he could, you know, could deliver with working with stars. It feels like he took all of that cachet and then went back to, you know, what Cassavetes had told him, and 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 went back into this like personal vision of New York. But in this time, he the personal starts with Paul Schrader and starts with really a remarkable script that no one wanted to touch because it's just too gritty and too uh too dark you know he really tapped into his uh the the darkest parts of himself for that yeah of course we're talking about taxi driver from 1976 i'd like to volunteer great i'll take you right over That's here all right. i'd rather volunteer to her if you don't mind and why do you feel that you have to volunteer to me because i think that you are the most beautiful woman i've ever seen What do you think of Palantine? Charles Palantine, the man you're volunteering to help elect presidents. I'm sure he'll make a good president. I don't know exactly what his policies are, but I'm sure he'll make a good one. You want a canvas? Yeah, I'll canvas. How do you feel about the senator's stand on welfare? I don't really know the senator's stand on welfare, but I'm sure it's a good stand. You sure that? Yeah. Well, we all work together here full time, day and night. So if you would just like to step over there, I'm sure that the gentleman well, will I, sign you. Well, things I drive a taxi at night, so it's kind of hard for me to to, um, to work in the day. So. Uh, then what exactly do you want? Would you like to come have some coffee and pie with me? Why? Why? Yeah. I'll tell you why. I think you're a lonely person. I drive by this place a lot. I see you here. I see a lot of people around you. And I see all these phones and all this stuff on your desk. And it means nothing. And then when I came inside and I met you, I saw in your eyes and I saw the way you carried yourself that you're not a happy person. And I think you need something. And if you want to call it a friend, you can call it a friend. You're going to be my friend? 
Yeah. What do you say? We just wanted to make the film. We felt very passionate about the, the script. And um, we even thought, Michael and Julia Phillips and myself, we thought of making the film in, in video, if need be, on video, and uh, in black and white video. There was talk of doing it in a different city, but then it wouldn't be the same. The taxi systems in other cities in America are different to a certain extent. Um, so we knew we had to stay in New York. It was pretty expensive. And the script was so tight and so strong that it made it very clear in my mind as, as to how the picture should look. And really, it comes from Schrader's uh, vision in, in the telling of the story. And ultimately, I realized that visually, we should pretty much see everything from Travis's point of view. Not that anybody else's thought process or frame of mind really enter into the film. And this would isolate him more and put you more on his side, so to speak. Not that we were looking for that, but meaning that it just seemed to me, no matter what the character is, that you're sort of, you're going along the journey with that character. You may like the character, you may not, but it's uh, just that you're interested in the character. We certainly felt De Niro, myself, and uh, sort of Chapman, you know, we felt very strongly about the, the emotions that the story created in us in a way that evoked from us. And it, it made us very passionate about about making the film and making the best film we could make under the circumstances. And then, of course, defending it in the editing, too. That became a big issue. But it's um, interesting to note, I think, that it was a film that we didn't think was going to be seen by anybody. We just had to make it. We didn't think it was going to be successful uh, financially, and it was. And we didn't think it was going to be recognized uh, critically, and it was. We just had to make it. We were going on to make other pictures. At that time, I was thinking of doing, you know, a different genre type based films in the Hollywood studios. What was left of the studio system at the time was very little. And the process was all changing and we were part of that change. And yeah, this movie is definitely among my favorite films of all time. And when I watch it again, sometimes I wonder <laughs> what that says about me. But um, it's just such an assured vision from a filmmaker and a lead actor and a screenwriter that all comes together and I know that all three of them felt the importance of this movie and that they just had to make it. And I think Scorsese told a story about approaching Michael and Julia Phillips who would go on to be, I think were pretty big producers at the time would go on to close encounters and more success after this. And they were just like, at the time he'd only made box car Bertha and they're just like, well, you know, come back to us after you've made something else and then he would make mean streets which got their interest and then he made alice and then it was clear that he could do it and um i just love that he stuck with this material over that that period of years and came back to it but yeah it's a, it's a really interesting story that paul schrader tells about having gone through some really horrible like personal crisis i think a divorce and uh bad ulcers i think right like really yeah, well, painful that, bleeding ulcers and alcoholism and drug abuse you know cocaine addiction and and kind of like homelessness basically yeah. getting kicked out of his girlfriend's house and having to live on his in his car for i don't know months at a time and then the story that you always hear is that he turned around and realized that he hadn't spoken to someone in at least a couple weeks yeah. so i'm just thinking about like how hard that would be to do to not talk to anyone for multiple weeks. Um, I mean, now obviously you could do it with text and whatever, but no contact. And there's something really deep and dark, the place that he was in 
that he tapped into to pull this character out and De Niro takes it one further and, you know, really cements everything with his interpretation of the Travis Bickle character. And it's one of the great performances of all time. It's it's just stunning. Yeah, you're talking true collaboration when you're talking about the three of them. I think that's what makes this film right. I mean, I think this is Scorsese's masterpiece. We'll probably say that, you know, once or twice per section. But for me, this is still the one, especially rewatching it, just like, Jesus, I, if I don't, I try not to watch it for a few years because it's just certain movies I like to retain their power and I hadn't probably seen in five or six years and it just it just the best thing is you notice other parts of it that you didn't notice the last time but it's a complete masterpiece and it's because these three people are all uh, you know it starts with Schrader completely laying himself bare and then Scorsese lays himself bare with the way he makes it and then De Niro lays everything into this role and and De Niro I think it's one of De Niro's best performances because it's actually pretty subdued and internal and I think often he's kind of, you know, like obviously with um, with Mean Streets, he's he's playing it pretty big in terms of the kind of character uh, and even in Raging Bull at times. Right. But this character is the opposite. He's like disappearing in front of you and, and lost internally and just so incredibly isolated, kind of like, um, I guess, how Schrader was raised a Calvinist and hadn't seen a movie, you know, uh, till very late in his life. He, the same problem De Niro's character has. He has no idea how to date a girl. He has no idea how to, you know, what movie to take them to. There was a scene in this that I had never really thought about before, but the, the beauty of rewatching a movie, you sometimes notice that scene. And it's towards the last act where he's he's sitting and he's holding a gun and he's watching, like, American Bandstand. And there's all these people, like, dancing slowly, but he's just sitting there, like, you know, drinking and holding a gun. And, and there's this great, like, you see the central problem, which is this guy is 26 years old he should be doing what they're doing. He should be holding a girl and dancing, but he's not. He's sitting there watching TV and holding a gun. And there's some, and there's some, and when that's the central dilemma of like, what's wrong with this character. And it's, and it's, I found it quite touching and kind of a, kind of a sad beat, but uh, especially cause I'd never caught his age before. This is the first time watching it where somebody said he was 26. And I was like, Oh, weird. Like just weird to think of a 26 year olds now, you know, <laughs> a tweeting, <laughs> you know, about movies <laughs> compared to Travis Pickle. You know, it's it's pretty wild. But uh, that scene popped out this time. And but there's so much. But there's there's this one image and I think it's in the original script. It's either in the original script or it's it's the original image that Schrader had that gave him the whole idea, which was the idea of a floating coffin that's going uh, a coffin that's floating and going through the streets of New York that then became the motif of a taxi. I can't recall where, where that image comes from, but that thing is that image is so haunting that just even hearing those words of a floating coffin, you know, driving through the streets, uh, which will also lead to my connector later. But it's um, I, fi- I find that really evocative. And I actually had a teacher um, who produced Mr. Holland's opus, Michael Nolan, and he for our, our treatment writing class, he would pull out his treatment that he wrote for Taxi Driver, and he told us the story that he wrote this really negative. You know, he was young, you know, he was a kid. It was his first job out there, and he wrote this absolutely slam. It was like a two-page slamming of Taxi Driver and why no studio should touch it. And he said that stayed on the cover page of that script for like two years from studio to studio, and he was so ashamed of that now. 
and he said this is just why this is absolute trash why this the worst parts of this industry are all represented by this treatment he did and he he would use it showed us this treatment I, I must have it somewhere as an example of what not to do and what not to let the business do to you is just become a drone you know because you're talking about how uncommercial it is and how blah 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 you know and yet it really hurt the film he, he said you know he said he would at multiple studios they would just send that one piece of treatment with it they wouldn't even write new treatment so it just get turned down based on that and I was like oh, wow. that was such a bleak thing to hear about a movie that ends up being so uh, you know just brilliant uh, on all levels and successful yeah. on top of that I yeah and still well. successful like it's like Clockwork yeah. Art those movies that keep doing business now they're still new audiences when they see it it reinvigorates them uh, and not many movies can do that uh, so this is this is something special and I think a big part of his ability to make us empathize as the, the difference between liking and wanting to be someone and empathizing is huge and, and he makes us empathize with uh, De Niro's character even though he's a racist even though he's probably psychot, somewhat psychotic his and his isolation but he finds a way for us to at least understand by being with him and by seeing the world through his view uh, for the time we get we can at least understand you know as much as we can about anyone yeah, and he's set up as a loner throughout the entire film. I think Scorsese says he shoots him in singles almost always. Like, occasionally there's somebody else in shot with him, but mostly his shots are his shots, mm. and everyone else exists outside of that. Yeah, I love that. That's just as a way to make him separate from the world and even more isolated. Yeah, I mean, and probably makes the dramatic impact of the scene where him and Sybil are in the diner together on their date uh, and the and the frames perfectly balanced between them for a while you know where they're just yeah. sitting there and it's it's a great it's a great change up of what you've been watching because he there's a chance it's going to work out it's a chance they could become a couple but then things start skewing even in that conversation then obviously when he tries to take her to a porno film uh, not realizing you actually feel really bad for him because he just doesn't understand that that's not necessarily something that should be into and really blows his chance with Sybil Shepherd, who is just uh, utterly stunning in this movie and, and probably led to me having a huge uh, crush on her for, for years. Um, yeah, she's really something in this movie. Yeah, and Scorsese's sort of stylized approach to New York, a city that I associate very exclusively with him and how he shoots it in this movie, I think is one for the ages. You know, a director and his city uh, are rarely so in sync in terms of creating this perfect atmosphere and capturing the character of the city while still keeping it in the single character's perspective. You know, it's it's 100% Marty, but it's also 100% Travis in that it's his point of view. But the, w- the way that he places the camera, the way that he edits, and all the stylish things that he does in this movie just really make it the one you know the masterpiece i think like i agree with you i think it's it's his crowning achievement really and i think it's the new york masterpiece too because it yeah. still stands up because i watched it uh, a couple weeks ago and then i was in new york just last weekend and the ent- i swear to god the entire time i was just walking around the streets it's still even though new york's obviously changed dramatically it still feels the same in a way as as the kind of view from a taxi and the whole time i was humming the theme the entire <laughs> trip like i just i just kept whistling uh the bernard herman which is one of the best i think movie scores of all time and it's also a final score by one of the you know an absolute legend it's it's just so beautiful the way it, it just somehow works with this 
ugly, gritty film, it it's amazing how music can give wings to something and just really mesh with it. Yeah, it touches on those those sort of horror things that he's talk that Scorsese was talking about, as you know, influences on some of the camera moves and some other things in the movie, and then it also touches on this lighter, almost loving like we see Travis being, you know, both horrifying and affectionate and the city itself is both horrifying and affectionate. You know, it's just, it's such a great score. It's so perfect, Yeah, but just adds to the, the whole package ultimately. And there's just some great com- comic relief in there with Albert Brooks's <laughs> really smart casting of Albert Brooks. Uh, Peter Boyle's great in the small role. It just, yeah. you just never forget these characters. Obviously Jodie Foster as a girl who doesn't want to be saved, isn't looking for a knight in shining armor is, is fantastic. Like totally alive. Uh, all these people just really, you know, give this film this other layer. Uh, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you a couple of quick things uh, like on the more the kind of controversial parts of the story, how you felt watching it this time. Like, so a big change from the script was uh, obviously all the pimps in the film were black and it was like more set kind of in a more ghetto uh, location. That was kind of part of the idea of the world that they were in. But when they changed it for the movie, you know, obviously Harvey Keitel was cast as the main pimp. And I think they said it was very hard to find a white pimp you know, almost impossible uh, in that town at the time. And obviously that was a switch for the film version. How did you, like, I always, I used to think, oh, I'd be curious to know what, why they would have done that. Uh, how, how, what was your thoughts on that? I'm just curious if you, if you think that makes sense. I mean, it does from the point of view of um, the producers were worried about potential rioting yeah. and, you know, in a period where we would a couple years later see riots around gang films and things like that, like the Warriors and whatnot, it's probably not unreasonable to think that could have been problematic. And ultimately, I think it would be a harder film to watch now if that were the case. And so, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I think it's a choice that I don't have a problem with, yeah. you know, it's a choice that I prefer that they made. And, and because the, by going with these kind of uh, more like mob type gangster type, especially not Harvey, but the other guys who kind of are the kind of holding people, it feels more in the world of Marty's other films in some ways. Yeah. But the, I'll tell you, I have a definitive answer on this now. Cause I didn't used to, I used to, I used to, this was before rewatching it for a long time. I was like, ah, it's a bummer. He went soft on that one element because that would have been more real, you know? And that was my, in my mind, but watching it again, I had such a visceral reaction to the scene where De Niro kills the young black man who's robbing the shop and Victor Argo's character is the shopkeeper. And the way that they treat the dead body, I found so hard to watch I found myself kind of almost in a little bit of shock. You know, there's just this dead man on, and the way they just kind of treat it like nothing and the, and the body, which is realistic to the film. So it's totally a great scene, but I found that a lot more shocking than I remembered. And I found it, yeah. especially in the political, that it made me realize that that was like seeing a taste of what it would have felt like if they had gone that direction. And it would have been too much because I really yeah. had, a, I, I mean, I really had a reaction to that scene. It's a brilliant scene, but man, when they just say, yeah, I'll take care of it. And they just kind of manipulate his dead body. I was just like, Oh fuck. It's well, it's, just heavy. The, it's, very it's heavy. not really Travis. It's the store owner. It's Victor Argo doing yeah. it. But yeah, it's, it's just, and the way Scorsese lingers on him, just smashing the guy with this oh, yeah. like it's, pipe or something. 
is really disturbing. But it's so to real to that to the totally. to the kind of mounting racial tensions that would be happening into that place. I mean, think about like uh, fifteen year or 20 years just under 20 years later you know you have uh oh no less than that 15 years you have spike making do the right thing which you know as explosive as that is and overt with the you know the racial issues between everyone this film is doing it in a much more realist way and it's yeah it's so so i totally understand that that choice now and and i'm, I'm really glad that i kind of gave it got clarity by watching it this time yeah but what about and then last thing i guess i'd ask before i move how how did you because you know spoilers be damned obviously in a movie like this I, it's like you know uh, fast forward if you haven't seen taxi driver um <laughs> but i have to assume but the ending i'm curious about two things what did you think the first time you saw this movie that it meant obviously there's not a hundred percent fixed meaning to it but we we know how you know schrader and marty obviously feel one way how did you do you you recall how you kind of interpreted it i think i was it was early enough in my serious film watching that it took some interpretation Mm -hmm. um you know there was a part of me that was just like the instincts kick in and you're like well this can't be real she can't really be in the car and then that moment of the mirror was just like what what just happened there to me at the time and and i think again instinctively i was like something's off something's not right and you can then roll that into the interpretation that marty gives in a lot of ways which is you know that it's just a matter of time basically until it happens again and i think um i think i got some sense of that although i don't know that i completely nailed it down uh, myself at the end i was listening to one of the there's another there's so many commentaries for this movie there's a couple uh, there's the great criterion one and then there's the Paul Schrader commentary and there's one by a film scholar where he was talking about the fact that he doesn't like that there's a shot of Sybil outside the car at the end because then that shows that she was really in the car in some way mm-hmm. and he would much prefer that that scene be left as a potential hallucination or something which you could still kind of say that it is but I, I, I don't think there's too much room for that yeah um but anyway yeah i think i was like i don't know what that is but it, it just was a, a very unsettling ending you know very like what is going on with him and that's one thing you could say about marty he, he you know his best films the guy knew when to cut out of the movie like a great ending like i, I think mean streets is obviously a really you know an amazing end. like just grabs you uh we're going to get to one of his best endings in a couple movies. And I think this is a brilliant ending, but I got to say like the first time I saw it, I totally was sure that this was the right interpretation for years, which was just, you know, Travis is sitting there dying and imagining, you know, what he's accomplished, you know, imagining what, what the world will think of him and, and this great thing he did today. And that's why it feels so heightened and romanticized his survival in the next part and then but that he's actually you know slowly dying as this dream is happening for himself i was just assumed that was like his final moments final thoughts and then you know the mirror part might have been like that final beep when he realized what actually was going on but watching it this time i and hearing them talk about it i, I definitely am comfortable with the idea that no he really does survive this because that is a big part of what the film is about it's about america and it is it is uh, that element is a satire you know of uh you know surviving that and becoming a hero through violence you know you become an american hero through a violent act but really you're just a, a ticking time bomb you know that last moment is so unsettling yeah well and the fact that civil shepherd comes around to him again after he was 
I, to to be fair to her, like incredibly creepy, and you know her, you know shunning of him is is pretty justified. It's like okay, yeah. this guy's not not right, and then for her to come back to him because of media attention, because he has been in some way absolved of all that, and clearly she was wrong. He is this heroic figure uh, that she buys into that, and yeah, it's just a it's really um, alarming. But um, true to life yeah. in some ways. But yeah, exactly. Now you've done something, right? Now you're someone uh, of of importance. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. She's an interesting character. It'd be a, there. I bet there's a great essay to be written just about her character in that film, like who that woman is. You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting itself. But anyway, it's yeah. This is a movie that uh, is very rich, and you get new interpretations each time. So, and it was a lot of fun to hear some of the Scorsese talking about how he structured it somewhat like a horror film. I thought that was pretty fascinating, um, and definitely shows. Um. Okay, so I'm going to go first on this one. I I circled around a few different things for this, but what I came back to was another movie that made a big impression on me in the early 90s around the time that I was seeing Taxi Driver, and it's another film that I think deals with loneliness and some other similar themes. Uh, and that is Mike Lee's movie Naked from 1993. Uh, you know what? That's a great, great, great. I, I can't believe that didn't come to me because I'm a huge Naked fan. I think it's one of the best performances, but you're dead on. That's like a perfect kind of character similarity in a lot of ways. So, how is Louise? I don't know. I don't know her as well as you. Did you get on with her? No, I've been out a couple of times. Does she like you? I don't know. You better ask her. Most people don't. Do you find that she's at all jealous of you? No. So, would you describe yourself as a happy little person? Yeah, I'm the life and soul. <laughs> have you ever thought, right? I mean, you don't know, but you might already have had the happiest moment in your whole fucking life, and all you've got to look forward to is sickness and purgatory. Oh, shit. Oh. I just live from day to day myself. I tend to skip a day now and again, you know what I mean? <laughs> I used to be a werewolf, but I'm all right. No! <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> I bet they're happy, eh? All they got to do is sit round howling at the moon. It's better than standing on the cheesy fucking thing. You know what I mean? I mean, tossing all these satellites and shuttles out into the cosmos. What do they think they're going to find up there that they can't find down here? They think if they piss high enough, they're going to come across the monkey with the beard and the crap ideas. And it's like, oh, there you are, Captain. I mean, are you busy because I've got a few fundamental questions for you? Are you with me? Yeah, because let's face it, right? What are rockets? I mean, they're just big metal pricks. You know, I mean, the bastards aren't satisfied with fucking the earth up. They've got to fuck space and all. You tell me something, love. Are you aware of the effect you have on the average mammalian, mancunian, X-Wiley, chromosome, slavering, lusty male member of the species? Uh, yeah. I thought so. Yeah, I mean, he's a more, I guess, educated character. This is David... <laughs> Definitely more verbose. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as as you would, if you've seen, you know, any Mike Lee films, you'll, you'll know that there's a lot of talking in a lot of them, but uh, this was my introduction to Mike Lee. I and my introduction to David Thewlis, who I don't think I had seen in anything prior. And this was one of those movies that we didn't rent at the video store. I worked at a Blockbuster Video. We didn't rent it. 
Uh, I had to go to the other video store, the cool indie video store, to rent this movie because I think it was either NC-17 rated or, uh, I don't know, there was something about it that was a little too racy for Blockbuster. <laughs> but it is a really remarkable portrait of... I mean, it's it's about two men, ultimately. You know, um, one that is incredibly, like, evil. Just, like, messed up, evil, hurtful, physically and otherwise, to women. And David Thewlis's character, who is definitely... <laughs> He's definitely not great with women. Uh, the opening scene is basically him uh, raping a woman and then running away. It's it's really disturbing. It's not the best introduction to a character ever by any means. But he is able to humanize himself throughout the rest of the film in this way that is pretty incredible because he is showing his own sort of nihilism and loneliness and sort of these philosophical things that he's worked out in his head that has put him in the place where he finds himself, kind of. Because he ends up going back to an old friend of his. I, I can't remember, did they date? Did he and her... Something like that, or... Yeah, sort of. He had some sort of power over her, like some mild power. He actually is a very similar character to the one in the movie I was talking about earlier, The Boys. That guy's maybe a bit more of a psychopath, but they're very similar in terms of how they can use their mind to kind of get leverage over people because they believe their worldview. Absolutely, and he's very convincing in his arguments, and he's very sarcastic, and acerbic and you know you're either going to be put off by him right away or you'll find him slightly endearing whilst feeling sorry for him sort of but it's a great character and obviously if you know anything about Mike Lee you know that a lot of what he does is developing characters with his actors so clearly Thulis had something to do with creating this character and it's one of the most memorable characters that I can think of it's certainly from this period and uh, it's just a film that goes from sort of scene to scene with him interacting with different other characters. Like he'll, he interacts with the roommate of this girl that he used to know and they sort of become involved. And then he interacts with a security guard. At a, that's my favorite part of the movie. The security guard stuff is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah, that that scene is great. He's interacting with a guy who's lost his girlfriend. He's very working class. You can barely understand him. And so it's just just a really interesting portrait of this guy drifting around to different parts of uh, London and um, how he deals with the different people. I don't know. There's something really interesting about it. It's a Criterion movie. I think it's on Filmstruck as well, but it was one that really made an impression on me when I first saw it. Uh, And yeah, it was one that it took me a while to figure it out. I was trying to come to what to pair Taxi Driver with, which is not easy. None of these are easy because these movies are so iconic, and especially this one. But yeah, the the idea of dealing with loneliness and nihilism and something about those two characters, I, I couldn't quite picture them interacting, but somehow they connected to me. And so I... I think it'd be an interesting double. Yeah, no, I like that one a lot. Um, and and Thulis, again, it's another performer who who's had lots of small, fun roles in movies, but you've never seen him do that again. You've never seen him in a role that complex, and it's just such a good role, you know? When somebody's able to do one performance in their career like that, you're like, oh, my God, what are they capable of? Like, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, so this year alone, I've got two perfect pairings for Taxi Driver. One is Schrader's film, First Reformed, which is literally <laughs> the same script outline as uh, the between this and Light Sleeper. I've heard Schrader talk about it. It's basically the same, and American Gigolo. They're the same character type in a lot of ways, and but with First Reformed, because he also, they're kind of like a diary from of a country priest. It's very keeping that internal monologue journal the way that Travis does. Uh, and so does uh, Ethan Hawke's character in First Reformed. When I first read the script, it was clearly the same author as Taxi Driver. I mean, the themes, it's a grown-up Taxi Driver, but it's still the same voice. This is really a, much more a film about the spiritual life. They're very similar. So that that this year is a, a film from this year. Obviously, I'm not going to pair with it, but they're so perfect pairing, as was um, the great Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, another movie from just this year that is very shaped from the Taxi Driver Mall, uh, too easy. Uh, another one I kind of flirted with was I Stand Alone by Gaspar Noe, but that's so obviously designed after Taxi Driver to be like Taxi Driver that I didn't want to go there. Um, I mentioned earlier the Seventh Victim is an interesting connector because of the, well, New York setting we've talked about on the New York episode, but also the idea of saving someone who doesn't want to be saved and how that doesn't end well, uh, I think is kind of an interesting an interesting pairing. But uh, I went with something very simple, and I, I, I really just ended up um, that image of the floating coffin is what helped me ultimately make my pairing. And this was the first film by this director I had seen, and it made quite an impact, I've got to say, because I knew nothing about this culture's uh, cinema, and that is uh, the film uh, Taste of Cherry by Abbas Kiristami from 1997. It's an Iranian film, which is probably the first film from Iran I had seen. And one interesting connector is that uh, Taxi Driver won the Palme d'Or in 76, and this film won it in uh, 97. So literally 21 years later, uh, both of these films won uh, the Palme d'Or. And this film's an inc- like couldn't be more different style-wise than Taxi Driver. Um, it's a completely minimalist film. It's a man is driving through the countryside of Tehran, and he's trying to find somebody who will bury him after he commits suicide because uh, suicide is such a sin in that country he explains to them that he's already dug the hole <laughs> he's got he's got the grave marked and he's ready to go and he just needs to find someone who he's willing to pay them a whole lot of money because that's not a problem at all because he won't need it anymore but he just needs to find someone so the film takes place in these there's basically very minimal style it's long takes inside the car uh conversational scenes as he picks up the different people and then these long shots watching the car itself or the jeep drive through the open kind of countryside so which kind of reminds me of the taxi driving around new york even though the location's so different but it's what's fascinating about the movie is just the these long interactions he has with people as he tries and there's three very different types of characters that he tries to um convince and he's also uh i can't remember how uh implicit it is that whether he's uh also a gay character but obviously also in that country that's also a problem and could be part of the reason they never explain why he wants to commit suicide per se but there's this other uh energy to the film but he's this very again like travis he's not psychotic at all he's very isolated and he seems to be outside of the culture that he lives in and is looking using this these these drives to try to find somebody who will help him 
uh, he's not looking for someone to kill him. He's just looking for somebody to bury him. Um, and I, it's just a, it's a very simple movie, but, and, and it'll, it'll be, it's pretty telling. There's absolutely no musical score. So it's the opposite of uh, taxi drive. And just to tell, just to warn you, you know, if this, uh, if you're, if you're not sure if this is your thing, Ebert called it excruciatingly boring, <laughs> but Rosenbaum gave it four out of four stars and and wrote a complete critique of what Ebert was saying about. It. So everything Ebert wrote, Rosenbaum really went after Ebert and said, "Yes, all these things are true if you're looking at western movies, but if you're looking at somebody from around who doesn't care about those things, look at the movie this way." So it's like a lot of art cinema, it depends on your state of mind when you give into it. And if you surrender to it, it's it's just this incredible melancholy ride, very existential, probably most similar in terms of the like the existentialism of like nostalgia or the passenger by Antonioni. I think it's got similarities to those, but, but I think with taxi driver, it would actually be a great double feature because I think parts of taxi driver would bleed into it and you wouldn't be competing. If you actually watch them together, you wouldn't be competing because, you know, the the taxi driver's got the violence and it has the action and it's, you know, it's, it's the bigger movie where some of those things would bleed into the quietness of what this other man's journey is. And I think, I don't know, I, th- I think it'd be a really fascinating one. Um, it's a movie I've only seen the one time and it left a real impression. It's not an exciting movie, uh, but it's it's a very interesting movie. It has a very interesting end that is very surprising. But then I found one more fun little thing today that I like, a little research, that Mardik Martin, who is the co-writer of Mean Streets, New York, New York, and Raging Bull with Scorsese, is born in Iran. And I thought that was interesting. So uh, just even though it's not this movie, I was just like, oh, that's really interesting that one of Scorsese's main collaborators uh, was from Iran. And then looking this up today, having no idea if Scorsese and Kiristami would have any connection to each other, because I definitely had no idea there was a a retrospect or something done right when Kiristami died with Scorsese giving a big talk about him online. So clearly he his work meant something to Scorsese, which was kind of nice to see after it already made that pairing to know that he was aware of his work and uh, appreciated it. I forget the year, but it was the first time I met him. I think it was uh, maybe 12 or 13 years ago. And I, um, I had seen by that time, over a period of a couple of years, four or five of his pictures, starting, you know, the trilogy, the uh, olive trees, all of that. Uh, but I hadn't seen close up yet. Now, at an early age in my life, I was about five or six, when I um, saw I was exposed to Italian neorealist films, 1947, 48, whatever. And for many reasons, I, I was shocked by these films, by the purity and by the truth of the Italian cinema that I saw, the open city, Paisa, Shoeshine, Bicycle Thieves. And I know Abbas loved these films too, I believe. Now. The interesting thing is after I saw four or five of his films together over a period of a few months, I found that um, I experienced that same impact 65 years later. That it was something that re, just completely, I don't know, just changed my way of looking at the world. So I think this, I actually think of my doubles, this one would be the most interesting to actually watch together. Um, you know, and even though they're just radically different. Yeah, I think that's a really cool idea. I I have not. I'm due for a rewatch on that. I haven't seen it since really early 2000s. Um, I I remember I was working at the video store in LA, this place called Laser Blazer, and that was where I really. I I mean, I was aware of Criterion. I think I've talked about it on the show, but 
I started to go much more all in on Criterion because the DVDs were coming out, and I feel like Taste of Cherry was one of the early. Yeah, it Criterion was. It was pretty DVDs. early, yeah, from memory. Like in the top, in the first three, four, five, I don't know, maybe not that early, but within the first 10, it felt like. And so I was like, because I was starting from, you know, square one, I was watching every single one as they came out. And I remember having watched Through the Olive Trees for a film class in college. Great film. And having been, yeah, I was impressed with it, but it's always tough when you're watching something in an academic context, you're forced to watch it. And I appreciated what it was doing, but I wasn't ready for it. And I think I was more ready for Taste of Cherry when I saw it, but I feel like I'm even more ready for it now. So... Very interesting idea for a double. I like it. Yeah, and it's crazy to think of how much of a rebel he must have been in Iran, you know, making a movie like that and those kind of themes when you're in a country that's just that conservative. You know, it's it's pretty wild. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, I think that'd be an interesting double. All right. So on to uh, New York, New York, 1977, his follow-up to Taxi Driver. I know you from someplace. No. You don't remember me? No. <laughs> you don't remember we met a few years ago? Was it a party or a dance? We had a long conversation. You can't remember that? No. I just want to explain to you. First of all, my parents are over there, my mother and father, my brother and sister. So I got to see them because I just was in two years in service, you know, so I haven't seen them. Now, I want to get your phone number so I can tell you tomorrow about what I was thinking about. There's something very, very important I've got to talk to you about. No. No what? No what? No. 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 No, 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 no. You don't understand. No, no. Give me, a, give, look, give me a number. Just, you got a pencil or no. something? No. All right, I have a photographic memory. Just give me a number and I'll, and I'll remember. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Can I meet you at Central Park? I'm serious. I know. No. I mean, come on. There's no way. No. That seat's taken. I know it's taken, but I'm going to sit here and I'm going to figure out another angle. Well, you can skip it because I've heard every angle here tonight. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. How about this? Gee, that's a swinging band. Look, I don't mean to be rude, really, I don't. I do have friends and they are coming back. So why don't you just leave? Why don't I leave as soon as they come back? Well, why don't you just leave now? If I leave now, I'll never get to know you. I'll never get to know what a wonderful, beautiful chick you are. I'm serious. Even though I'm giving you a line, I'm serious. And I know you know that. I know that. I mean that from the deepest part of my heart, which is not the deep. I love the idea of two creative people in love with each other, um, uh, care about each other, but because of um, something in them that has to do with their creativity, cannot um, uh, cannot live together, cannot be together in their lives. And I think it's a, it's a very honest and true emotions that 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 occur. What was interesting to me, and I think what relates to New York, New York, um, is that when I went to Hollywood in the 70s, what I saw of the old Hollywood was, was dying away. And the films that I saw in the late 40s and throughout the 50s, coming from Hollywood, um, had the stamp of the Hollywood studio on it. So that being so involved watching these films, the artifice of the film, the the sets themselves, the obvious sets. Sometimes the sets were painted. You could see the background. You could tell that's a painting. It's not real. Um, the street curbs that were supposed to be a New York street, the street curbs are too high. Uh, the extras were too well-dressed somehow. Uh, it didn't look like uh, uh, the city I knew. But we understood it to be a different kind of reality, a parallel universe in a way, to the reality I knew. 
you know, in the streets or at home and that sort of thing. That doesn't mean that the films are any less true, you see. And that doesn't necessarily mean that um, because they're coded, in a sense, what I mean, there's a codification, there's a code that occurs. The happy endings that weren't quite realistic, that weren't true. Uh, there was something else going on uh, emotionally, emotionally in these films that uh, um, were very true to the human condition. And I try to bring that out in New York, New York, but place it against and upon the old template. I decided that the way to handle New York, New York would be to deal with the artifice right up front. In a time in the 70s when that sort of thing wasn't happening, that, that, was, that was gone. You know, I wanted to, uh, Laszlo Kovacs and I were shooting the film, I wanted to originally shoot the film in 133 aspect ratio, square. We shot it for that way for about a week, but we couldn't, for the new lenses and the projection, uh, we had to uh, open up the screen a little bit to 166, not 185, 166. So it, if you'd see it on television, and uh, there was no line on top and bottom, it would still, it would kind of look like an old film, and I thought that was kind of nice. But not only that, it was a matter of the, the, the costumes, and a matter of the makeup, and a matter of the production design by Boris Levin, um, that we just literally, uh, you know, absorbed uh, all the MGM musicals, all the Warner Brothers musicals, pi pictures I had known for many times, including the montage sequences, a night town sequence where they go out in the night dancing and the guy is shaking the cocktail shaker and the neon lights are hitting. And in a way, it was a matter of trying to uh, come to terms with the reality that I sensed from these movies that I had been seeing from 1945 on or so to 1957. Yeah, he takes all that cachet, uh, which reminds me of another director who took all his cachet from his his film uh, Whiplash, <laughs> and put it. I've got to say, like I've only seen. I realized I don't think I've ever seen New York, New York from the start. Uh, it's I, as we've talked about many times. Sometimes I take a long time to come to musicals. Uh, of course, this isn't a straight musical, but I definitely seen probably from the second half on, you know, on TV, and maybe just never watched the entire film. So. It's really weird to watch this movie now after La La Land. It's very strange when you realize that La La Land is just completely beat for beat a lift of this movie. Uh, hopefully a positive homage, and that's not necessarily a problem because it's, you know, it's different enough because it's set in L.A., but it's just the same. You know, it's really... It's, I, the things that work best at La La Land are the things that also worked in this. So they were the things that are most successful, like, uh, you know, where it ends, obviously, in La La Land and, and the ideas of how characters have to choose trade-offs of their careers and stuff like that are so you know also the shining moments of new york new york which is interesting so it was a strange way to see it i kind of it's a bummer i i didn't watch it earlier but the things i loved about this movie i think the opening 30 minutes or 25 minutes that whole opening sequence is one of my favorite you know parts of any movie i think it's brilliant yeah. the way they yeah. they meet you know yeah we were talking about texting about it. it's it's one of my favorite meet cutes as it yeah. were ever because he's so obnoxious. It's the scene I opened this sequence with because, or part of it anyway, because it's actually a pretty long scene. But um, it's he's so obnoxious and yet so oddly endearing. And it's so great to see Liza Minnelli keep turning him down and yet he continues to come at her in this way that's both off-putting and yet there's something about the two of them. There's something about her that is drawing him to her. And ultimately, it ends up, you know, being the spark for this romance, which, you know, is the driving force behind the movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just about two creative people and how difficult that can be uh, and how fragile, you know, people like that can be. And, and I don't know, 
It's just, I think it, for me, I love Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, but for me, this is the one that I feel like gets overlooked, mostly because it's, I think it's seen in sort of a negative light because it was in a period when supposedly there was uh, a lot of drug use, and I don't know if the script was fully done when they started, I could be wrong about that, but I think considering all those things... It just shows what a great filmmaker Scorsese is ultimately because what you get is a pretty incredible, sprawling, musical, doomed romance. And I think it's a good movie. I think, you know, despite its reputation, I think it's it's one of my sort of standout Scorsese films, personally. How did, how did you feel about No, it's definitely a great movie. It's it's not, like, for me, I, I maybe connected, well, I connected a lot to De Niro's character, sadly, at certain points. There's certain things about, I mean, what really impresses me in this film as a microcosm of everything in Marty's films uh, relationship-wise, is they're so complex. The his vision of romantic love and relationships is is so honest, um, and it's the total opposite of Hollywood romances. Like he he's continually putting in these little moments in all his movies, but this one I think particularly showing why even two people are totally in love, and this should be the best thing ever, and there should be no problems. It's still gonna have problems. It's still gonna have. It's still gonna be messy, and it still probably won't work out because of humanity because <laughs> of because of the the humans involved in a relationship make it tricky and when you have artists together uh, and two volatile personalities in their way even though she's not Liza Minnelli's not all that volatile I mean De Niro plays a really you know he's got some really amazing moments where he he's great and supportive and then on a dime you know he just turns and uh, you know uh, gets uh, gets uh, jealous or or just you know uh, pissed off I think often jealous professionally you know yeah in some ways Definitely. which is which is interesting um and obviously la la land topped into law so i thought it was really good i was really impressed by it and i was probably in the middle i think it meanders a little bit maybe uh, at times uh, laszlo kovacs shot it it's which i think is great but what i will say about it is it might be the best ending of any of his movies it's great i think it's i'd call it a perfect ending and la la land more or less ripped it off but in a way that isn't as organic like the the theme is the same at the end of la la land but they have to kind of use the flash forward device and all that to do it in this it's so perfectly done where you're just not you're just watching them and they're coming towards each other i I won't you know not that it's really a spoiler uh but the way the way it kind of concludes in these kind of downbeat obviously umbrellas of sherberg is another one that has that kind of an ending uh, it's perfect in this movie. It yeah. really is. It's just the way it's executed and it really stuck with me afterwards. And I think, yeah, no, I think it's a really fascinating film, I've got to say. But I think his complexity is what really uh, impresses me, how honest it feels. Yeah, I agree with all that. Yeah, the ending and his complexity. It also has one of my favorite marriage proposal scenes oh, yeah. in a movie, um, <laughs> which is the basis of a lot of their disagreements is he does something for her or gives her something or in some way sets something up where she's supposed to react a certain way and she doesn't react the way he wants her to react and he completely flips out. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, I don't like it about myself that I can relate to that. You know, I can relate to the idea of caring about somebody and doing something special for them and not having it be as special as you'd like it to be yeah. or not having them realize what a big deal it is or how much work you put into whatever. Um, and his, you know, far, you know, overreactions to those scenes really emphasizes for me, um, 
how I am sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but um. Anyway, yeah, you're right. The ending is is just something else. So. And it was uh, it was technically a flop, but I mean, I think it what cost like 13 million. It made 14. It was considered a failure, but then I guess there's something about like that Rocky. It somehow shared profits with Rocky because Rocky was assumed that it was going to be a, a nothing movie for the company, but then obviously it was a smash, so it ended up balancing itself. So it wasn't like a career, complete career ender like people were predicting at the at the time, I think, when it came out. But obviously it its reception affected him pretty deeply from what I understand. Yeah. What did uh, what kind of came to mind in terms of something that would go with this one? This one's a, I actually had fun with this pairing, and it and it and it's all about the meat cute. I actually paired this movie entirely based on that opening sequence of the meat cute with one that I think is equally awesome and the same kind of thing where one guy is pursuing the woman who is just continually rejecting them, and then they have great chemistry and it's a little volatile. There's also a character who is sing a, a nightclub singer, so that also uh, also fits. Uh, it is. Is uh, the 1952 film uh, Macau? Which one of you is Cinderella? Get out of here! Stick around! Beat it! I'm the one that's getting out of here. When I'm ready, will you get out of here and close that door? Would you mind giving me a hand? I think I wouldn't enjoy that. Let me go! I'll slug you, so help me, I'll slug. Oh now, fold up your tent. Why you stupid? your rush stick around music whiskey privacy stick around looks like a party come on don't tell me you're that exclusive one side Clyde some girls don't think I'm so bad it's all a matter of taste uh, directed by Joseph von Sternberg uh, but technically completed by Nicholas Ray uh, after von Sternberg was fired by Howard Hughes. This is another RKO film. And the main reason I hadn't seen this one. And if you listen to the show, I am a, such a huge fan of um, his kind of woman, um, which also stars Jane Russell and our, our man, uh, Robert Mitchum that, and I just think their chemistry is so great. I knew they were in this film together and I just had never gotten around to seeing it. So I watched it and I was just instantly like, Oh yes, this is the, perfect movie to pair because the opening is so great they're on a they're on a ship uh, going from hong kong to macau and um she uh, she jane russell's kind of somewhat seducing a guy but doesn't really want wants i think i think she wants like to share have his cabin so she can kind of stow away or something uh for for the trip but then he starts putting the moves on her and then he starts getting violent and he's like forcing himself on her and she takes her shoe and throws it at his head after she screams and the shoe goes out the window and hits Mitchum, who then looks inside the room and sees what's happening. He's like, hey, do you need any help? And, you know, ends up coming in there, sorting the guy out, but then asking her out. She has no interest. She leaves. He follows her, you know, another, there's another meet cute a few couple minutes later where she takes off a um, uh, a legging and throws it off the off the edge of the ship, but it floats down and lands on his face. And so he goes up to see her again. She, <laughs> she rejects him again. Like she rejects him four, four or five times before anything really starts happening between them. But again, their chemistry is what makes this movie. The movie is the other reason I paired it is this is another movie that was considered uh, 
a it was a box office failure completely but also com- considered one of the legendary fiascos it's funny on screen i can't really tell i i still think it it holds together nicely it's nowhere near as uh it's not like a favorite in the way that his kind of woman is to me just it just has so many things working for it this has their chemistry it's it's uh so these characters he's like a uh she's a sultry nightclub singer so i like that connection as well uh she's going to look for a job in hong kong to you know to sing uh we don't know what her background is but you assume she's kind of some sort of femme fatale but she isn't and he you think is possibly a cop the whole most of the movie you think that might be his background or some sort of criminal uh he ends up uh, trying to get work from this nightclub owner uh who's very uh cautious because they think there could be interpol after him and there's another salesman on board the ship who plays a role too uh there's some interesting things about this film and then it becomes kind of a little noir espionage kind of story but pretty simple it has got von sterberg's like uh, sense of place i think he's always been very good at creating that sense of uh, uh foreign locations obviously and uh some of his work with dietrich and uh you know nightclubs and things like that you know it's it's howard hughes so it's you know there's a lot of drama behind the scenes because uh his kind of woman also had you know major reshoots so in this one i guess von sturtenberg was fired you know maybe halfway through uh nick ray came on um, we have uh, Gloria Graham. I, this is a story I found out. Gloria Graham plays the true form fatale in this. She's the uh, girlfriend of the guy who owns the nightclub, and she's kind of, you know, kind of a, a bit of a villain. And um, the story behind this is that she apparently, I never knew this, she apparently was going to be cast in A Place in the Sun in, I assume, the Liz Taylor role. Wow. And Howard Hughes wouldn't release her from the contract and forced her to be in a small role in this. And she hated him so much, wanted off the movie, so apparently she overacted <laughs> to get revenge in this film. But it just as like, like stories like that. And also, um, I guess, uh, Von Sternberg, Jane Russell talks about that Von Sternberg was so incredibly nasty to everyone uh, and was always insulting uh, her and Mitchum. And he would literally say to Mitchum, what are we going to do with this beautiful, stupid, girl about her and right in front of her and stuff like that so eventually was fired nick ray came on and obviously he was you know i assume still with gloria graham at that point so just all this crazy stuff happening behind the scenes and yet there's still a lot of great stuff here and some really good chemistry still and uh you know i I think it's a fun movie actually i I had a lot of fun this is a new discovery i hadn't watched it oh nice uh, until doing this one and so it was like it was great that it also perfectly because I knew enough about it that I was like I wonder if that would pair with that and then I was surprised at how well it did um, there's actually a pretty good quote here I'll just throw it this kind of nerdy but from Andrew Saris talking about this about uh, von Sternberg but he just says uh, uh, even uh, with a mechanically meaningless assignment like Macau Sternberg's visual signature smiles through the veils and nets like the Cheshire cat a la Catard uh, that he chose to come to terms with an often uncongenial creative environment simply marks him as an artist who preferred lighting up a small shadow to cursing the darkness i love that last phrase so i just grabbed it but uh i i, I have no idea if that's what's working about this movie i think again it's probably more mitchum and russell that i'm really in for uh and also howard hughes always just has this slightly bonkers quality to a lot of what he makes but uh i think those two would be pretty fun pairing yeah i'm with you 100 percent. i think it's a great chemistry kind of story and the two of them together are dynamite yeah, I like that movie a lot. I think yeah. it's a really neat film. So that's a that's a good choice. I'm glad you got to check it out. Uh, I am going back to Mr. George Stevens. Oh, nice. With a latter uh, career movie for him from 1970. It's called The Only Game in Town. Yeah, I don't know that. I haven't seen that one. Do you want orange juice or pineapple? 
Three summers ago, a party at Al Russo's. Who's Al Russo? We got I. You and I. That rhymes. Uh, we left the party, and we wound up back at my place. I've never met you before in my life until last night. Congratulations. There's not many girls in this town remember every guy they've been to bed with. What's the matter? What kind of a person are you? The kind that likes to be remembered. I think you should just finish your coffee and get out of here. Why? Because I have a long antenna for bad news. No, I mean, why should I finish my coffee? You're very wise. Why, she said, unable to stifle her curiosity. Well, because I'd only break your heart, he said, cavalierly. Oh, I've made some nuts in my time, but you take the cake. Made? I meant met. He said made. <laughs> You're too much. Does that mean I can finish my coffee? Suit yourself. How long we've been married? Uh, seems like forever. If it wasn't for the kids, I'd leave. Yep. Me too. Uh, what do you say we abandon him? I couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. I could. That I believe. Nelson Algren says you should never go to bed with anybody who's got more problems than you do. <laughs> do you ever touch ground? I have my moment. Oh, you like this movie. So it's from, like I said, 1970. It stars Warren Beatty and Liz Taylor. Uh, Return to working with Liz Taylor for him. And it's basically about an aging Las Vegas chorus dancer played by Liz Taylor who sort of drifts into an affair with a lounge piano player and compulsive gambler played by Beatty. And she... So she runs into him one night. She's like walking home and she goes into this bar and he's playing piano and they sort of connect and it's got a similar sort of, um, they kind of are abrasive to each other. They are put off by each other at first and Beatty's kind of a cad, um, but he is still charming and he's more charming than De Niro is in New York, New York ultimately. But it's got that sort of air of doomed romance and it comes out that her character's actually sort of been in this long-term relationship with this married guy for years, and suddenly he comes back into the picture and things get complicated. And things are further complicated by the fact that he is a compulsive gambler, and that sort of comes into play. You know, I love gambling movies, so uh, you're already selling me on this one. Yeah, it's a good... It'd be an interesting pairing with California Split mm -hmm. in some ways, too. Um, but, um, yeah, there's just something about this romance that, you know, vaguely reminded me of some things in New York, New York. Um, and in rewatching it, I was just reminded how much I like the two of them in this movie together. They're just really, really great. 
Um, I think this is one that I remembered Vincent Gallo mentioning as like a favorite mm-hmm. on an interview he did. I want to say around the time of the Brown Bunny, maybe, uh, where he called out some stuff that I hadn't seen at the time that I ended up loving, like Scarecrow and uh, there was like an Ozu film or two mm-hmm. that he liked. I don't know. Anyway, this was in that he likes Warren Beatty. So he had called out this and, oh, I think All Fall Down by Frankenheimer and a couple other Beatty films, Mickey one. Oh yeah. So I would go on and see all those and I liked all of them, but this is definitely one of my favorites of that group. And I hadn't, for whatever reason, I hadn't connected the George Stevens thing to a place in the sun and Liz Taylor and all that. But, um, yeah, this is a great little movie. It's, uh, another one with a twilight time Blu-ray and I don't know if it's streaming available or not, but but definitely one I think you would dig for sure. Oh, I mean, it sounds, it, it ticks all my joy buttons. Uh, I might be borrowing that one from you first up. Sounds good. Once we finished uh, 20 more didn't you? <laughs> films by Scorsese, <laughs> um, which takes us to uh, what many would consider his, uh, you know, true masterpiece. One that certainly put him on, I think, the, I feel like in a lot of ways it is a, a shift because I feel like Raging Bull from 1980 could have gone either way. Like it's the and, and I, I know he thought that obviously he would there was again a lot of uh you know maybe a lot of uh, coke still in the system at this point but it feels like this is a film that once he found his connection to it I mean this is a, a script a, a project that De Niro had taken to him and he had circled it for years and kept kind of rejecting it Scorsese just couldn't didn't like boxing uh didn't understand what the story was about and kept saying I don't know what it is. And then at a certain point, he found the connection that the ring, it's not just boxing, it's the ring of life, and, he, and the fight could be anything that you're fighting, you know, and, and need to survive. And he was obviously going through his personal demons and the fight for his career, you know, uh, especially yeah. after a film that was considered a failure. Uh, and, you know, he, and I guess he almost died of an overdose right before this, I guess. Is that right? Oh, I, I, that's possible. I believe, I believe that was, and, and I think that, Things like that can hurt your career, you know, if it becomes public knowledge, obviously, um, because yeah. you seem unstable. So, uh, and obviously, it's a different era than where we are now. But um, it, it's this is this is once he connected, he went all in and found that connection, and that's what transcends us from becoming a boxing film to something, uh, you know, a lot deeper about a, a man, about the, the soul of this of this being, which I think's. Uh, pretty fucked up. Thanks for the drink. He's over there. He don't want to come. Call him. If you call him, I'll come. All right, I'll be right back. Here he comes. What is it? You don't call anybody anymore. We never see you anymore. I know that. You never come around anymore. You can't even make a call. What is it? Oh, I'm busy. I'm going away fighting. I'm busy. I'm busy. Busy. Look at him taking me seriously. I'm, a, I'm only kidding you. What a fucking kid. That's the best oh, fucking fighter around. Oh, the Moulinians. Forget about it. They're all afraid to fight yeah. you. How you feeling? All right? I'm all right. Yeah. Good. Strong? Strong. Yeah, strong. Yeah, I'm all right. has got to watch his ass, right? I think he should. Yeah. Right. Last three, four times I won nothing but money with the guy. Oh, he's no piece of cake. That's a good fighter. Very attractive guy. Old girls like him. No marks. Clean. Jake, am I wrong? Aren't you getting a few pounds? Yeah, a few pounds. I knock it off right away. I'm no problem. Right away. 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 
Well, look, let me ask you something. I'm just talking. I'm just talking. Uh, I come to you and I'm telling you that I'm about a lot of money on you. This fight is Gennaro, right? Yeah. Well, what would you tell me? What could you say to me? I would say about everything you got. Everything? Everything. Because I'm going to open this hole like this. Excuse my French girl. <laughs> I'm gonna make him suffer. I'm gonna make his mother wish she never had him. <laughs> this happened to his dog meat, what? Did he say something in the paper? No, he's a nice, a nice kid. He's a pretty kid, too. I mean, I don't know, I got a problem. I should fuck him a fight. Fuck him a fight. You really love when you fuck with this kid, what's up? Well, you mean you want me to get him to fuck you? Me? Yeah. No, I don't want to fuck me. I can do that easily. How you gonna do that? Because I get you both in the ring, I give you both a fucking beat, and you both can fuck each other. Ah, you... <laughs> I get all full of blush. You're used to that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, drink up. It's ginger ale, Jake. Come on, tell me. Okay, hey, good luck. Raging Bull came out of De Niro. Quite honestly, I didn't really, I didn't know any sports, so I wasn't interested in Raging Bull in that sense, in, in boxing. Uh, he kept at me on that picture for a number of years, actually, until finally uh, I was in the hospital and De Niro came up to visit me and he was in the bed and he said, uh, why don't you just, he said, listen, you'd be good for this film. Why don't you just do it? Come on. And uh, I suddenly said, yes. And I realized, I, you see, I kind of found myself in the character, in a way, in what he was interested in. And, and what Bob De Niro was interested in myself suddenly came together in my head through this man named Jake LaMotta and this, this uh, profession, quote-unquote, of fighting, which means a guy's job, he gets up, he goes and hits people. They hit him back. He comes home. It's the same thing. The ring, the bedroom, the kitchen, it's the same. There's not, and it's, it just becomes all of life. And so I understood that. I find uh, you know, what's so great about actors, you know, they're like, they're re received, they receive so much and uh, they have, it's almost like being, and particularly my relationship to De Niro, I think his, it's almost like being an open wound that could feel everything. The sensitivity is so strong. And I just happen to connect with that sensitivity. And there's a great privacy about that. In any event, he just understood a certain kind of uh, relationship to life that, uh, that I grew up with. Yeah, it's a pretty remarkable, remarkable movie. But I do feel like it could have gone either way. I, could, I feel like this could have been the last film made by this director and who, or the last big movie. And then he might have been reduced to making smaller things if this black and white boxing movie hadn't connected with audiences. And instead, it, in a sense, feels like his biggest movie and then suddenly leads to bigger movies in the future. Like it opens, uh, opens a critical door for him because it, you know, was received so well with Oscars and, you know, other kind of um, plaudits. But, um, yeah, do you remember the first time you saw this and the kind of impact it had? Well, two things before I get to that. One is that in an interview I was just listening to with Scorsese, he was saying that he was making this at the same time Chimino was making Heaven's Gate, oh, wow. both for United Artists. So, like, that's an interesting... And, again, you know, you're talking about precipice of potential failure, and uh, I just thought that was... I hadn't even put those two things mm -hmm. together. But um, I'm trying to remember the first time I saw it was... I think I took a little while to get to it, but I think my problem with this one has always been it's just a tough watch. Yeah. Because the character is so... Destructive. Self-destructive. Yeah, right? dog, doggedly determined to destroy himself physically, uh, emotionally, mentally. 
and um, it's it's just hard to watch him physically get punished, punish himself, and it's such an incredible performance from De Niro that, yeah, it just makes it all the more difficult for me. But, I mean, in terms of the way that he shoots it, the boxing sequences are just insane. They're so incredible. The stylization, the, you know, the way that Scorsese enlarges the ring, the way that, you know, he would do things like, you know, putting flames in front of the camera to give, like, this sense of, uh, you know, the, the wavy lines that you get when you do that. And just this... Michael Chapman, baby. That's who, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, you, you got too technical. I'd, I'd say this is also the peak at this point in movies of technical achievements by Michael Chapman and then Thelma Schoonmaker. I think both of them are reaching, like real peaks in what movies can do in in some of these boxing sequences is the editing of this film is just remarkable and the photography of the film so i think i think those sequences are just so rich and and just fascinating with what's going on and then the the family drama yeah. which is still the bulk of the movie is hard to watch this is a movie i've probably only seen it three times in my life because it doesn't invite rewatching, and yet it has real power to it because this guy, yeah, like you said, he's so uh, self-destructive. And and what I love is this, like, and this connects directly to the film I picked. But I love the idea of a guy who's incredibly jealous, like violently jealous, <laughs> and yet has to pick the most beautiful woman in the entire town to be the one he has and that way anytime she looks at someone or they look at her it's going to be a problem you know he's going to destroy the the object of his desire you know it's such a classic trope and heartbreaking you know uh at the same time because he's she always really does love him yeah i was gonna say well and he's always setting himself up for failure that the whole conceit of the movie is the idea that like he can't ever fight joe lewis because he's not a heavyweight and, you know, his brother, Joe Pesci, who's incredible in the movie, by the way, um, so good. And was no one before this. I mean, both Joe Pesci and Mo- Kathy Moriarty were basically unknown. So Insane. Insane because they're both so good in it. But, you know, at the beginning, Joe's like, you know, that's not a possibility. So why do you even think about it? You know, like, but that's, you know, the kind of paradox that he sets up for himself time and again, you know, is this... Like you say, the most beautiful woman, the most jealous guy. Terrible idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just something. So, And it's a boxing yeah. biopic in quote marks, you know, about Jake LaMotta, an Italian middleweight boxer. But, but really, it becomes much more about the family dynamics and what it's like to be this kind of a guy. This guy who, I mean, which is interesting because the guy obviously had a lot to do with the film. I know LaMotta coached, you know, De Niro throughout. So it's amazing how laid bare I mean, it certainly doesn't make the guy look great, you know. Yeah, I mean, no. it's remarkable where he, that he ends up doing, you know, stand-up comedy. I mean, it's. I always thought that was just so bizarre, but it's true, you know. This is all based on this uh, real life of this guy, but just, yeah, the destruction of inner demons. But this is a movie that is remarkable. If somebody hasn't seen it, you know, they are in for a powerful experience, so that, for, especially that first viewing. And watching it again, it still is. There's certain scenes, especially, you know, chasing her down in the street after being jealous. And, and, and when he goes after his brother, it's it's oh, rough, man. you know. But yeah, but I, I think it's I think it's a fascinating film. And, and in terms of the artistry of cinema, making a black and white film in 1980 the way they did, uh, it's just, yeah, it's, I always thought it was, I mean, it's amazing that that year that 
both that and Elephant Man are made in the same year and both lost to Ordinary People. Ordinary People. <laughs> Which, Which is a movie I love. I love it Don't too, but I just can't. It's hard to yeah. fathom that it could beat Well, those yeah, two you're movies. talking about this movie is in the conversation with Citizen Kane and some yeah. others in terms of the greatest films, in terms of a film as yeah. it is made. You know, again, not my favorite viewing experience, but yeah. the craftsmanship is is just beyond top notch. It's just yeah. incredible. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's really remarkable. And and again, an awesome knockout comeback to a career because, you know, this gave him that chance once he connected to the material, he made it per- as personal as he could possibly make it and he laid himself laid out his demons, Scorsese's demons and then uh, ends up having a true critical hit on his hands and that's kind of exciting because that then propels him to be able to make some stranger and quirkier movies in his next cycle that uh, I know some of the movies that we love most of his entire filmography. Yeah, which are actually stumbling blocks sort of in his career or mm-hmm. you know, stumbling block and then a comeback and yeah, it's just crazy that even after this movie He's still, you know, not necessarily on easy street by any means. No, he's he's always been a he's a, keeps taking risks and doing yeah. things that aren't wouldn't just be the because the obvious thing to do if you're him is just make gangster movie after gangster movie, you know, or like you know violent movie after violent. That would be the thing that people want from you, but he he's never he's never done that. Yeah, I don't think he'll ever be that guy. No, he's too he's just I think his interests are too vast. Um, so yeah, so I'm curious how you how you paired this one. Well, I again I. I I had I flip flopped a little bit. Initially, I was thinking Mishima because mm-hmm. I found some similarities between the characters. Obviously, there's a direct Paul Schrader connection uh, between the two films, but ultimately, it just didn't quite sit right with me. It just didn't feel like the way that I wanted to go. And so then I just started being a little bit more obvious, and I started looking at boxing movies. And I went through tons of them, and I finally landed on one that I'd meant to see for years, and that is much more of a straight biopic in a lot of ways, but um, a really good one, and that is Ali, Michael Mann's mm. film from 2001. Okay. Y'all want to lose y'all money? Then you bet it on Sonny. He know I'm great. He will fall in eight. Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll whoop you right now. Ten and a half. Two ten and a half. The challenger. Cash is played, 210 and a half pounds. Man, you showed us right. <laughs> oh, ugly bear, come on, let's go. You got all these folks fooled. I ain't scared of you. I ain't scared of you. 218, 218. Sonny Liston, the champion of the world. 218 pounds. Pounds of what? Pounds are ugly. That man's so ugly, when he sweat, the sweat run backwards off his forehead just to stay away from his face. <laughs> Come on, you big ugly bear, I'll turn you into a rug. Keep talking. I'm gonna fuck you up. If you whoop me, I'll crawl out of the ring and take the first jet airplane out the country. Is that a promise, Mr. Clay? You're going to be the first one eating his words. Cash, Cash is, you're a seven-to-one underdog. He talks with his fists. What do you say? You scared of him? I'm going to give Sonny Liston talking lessons, boxing lessons, and falling down lessons. Cash, sir, are you a black Muslim? Pat Putnam says in the Miami Herald. That's religions is all business. What kind of questions? Angelo, tell Mr. me. Mr. Clay, me. the fact is, Malcolm X was in town, then he left. Was that so he wouldn't embarrass you? Cassius, yeah, how? Liston doesn't like you. Really can't stand you. Says he wants to kill you. Howard Cosell, you ain't nothing but an instigator. Man, how you get that way? Cassius, now you're being truculent. Well, if it's good, I'm mad. <laughs> <laughs> you next.
As soon as I'm done with Sunny Liston, I'm fighting Halico Sale. Y'all write that down. So I think I had written this one off around the time it came out because I got to be honest, I, I don't know if I was in the place where I could really appreciate Will Smith or Will Smith giving this kind of performance at that time. And it just seemed like, I don't know, I guess it just didn't seem like my kind of movie, you know, at that time. And I'll, I'll make a concession right now. I, I'm a huge Michael Mann film fan, especially early. I purposely skipped out on this one. And I just something about it, just I kept looking at the trailers and going, you know what, I just don't know if I care. So yeah. I, I still haven't seen it. Well, I got to say, you should give it a shot because I think it's interesting. You know, it's it's a really, I mean, as obvious as it is to say, it's a really incredible performance from Will Smith. <laughs> like, he's really good down to vocal things. And, I mean, obviously there's a lot of footage of, of Muhammad Ali out there. So, you know, the, the stuff with him and uh, Howard Cosell, played incredibly by John Voight, who at first I didn't recognize him, you know, and their whole relationship and rapport and, you know, on screen and off is really interesting point in the movie. Um, but so anyway, Will's got a lot that he can study and you can see that he did. And, um, yeah, there's just, I don't know. Michael Mann is one of those craftsman filmmakers. I feel like he is not Kubrickian necessarily, but he's on the level of a Kubrick kind of filmmaker in terms of, you know, the prowess and the, I don't know, just all the time and energy he puts into a movie. You can feel it. You can feel the precision, you know? And um, yeah, I just, I don't know. I was really surprised by this one. It's got an incredible cast, including uh, Jamie Foxx and Mario Van Peebles as Malcolm X um, Jeffrey Wright is one of his um, sort of higher up guys that's in his uh, entourage, if you will, sort of. I think he's a photographer. I can't remember. Uh, Michael T. Williamson, Jada Pinkett, obviously. Joe Morton, Giancarlo Esposito. It's it's just a really incredible, sprawling epic. And there's so much about, and I feel stupid, but I just never really paid attention to Muhammad Ali. I, I knew him as a boxing champion but I didn't know him as the political figure that he was. And I didn't know about the, you know, um, not the draft dodging, but basically him refusing his induction and, and the impact that had on his career. It's just all this stuff that he sort of um, turned himself into a controversial figure in a lot of ways because of the choices he was making. It just, none of that resonated with me outside of, this having seen this movie so it was just neat to see that whole story played out however truncated and to the boxing scenes are great they're really well done i mean they're not as stylish as what scorsese's doing but they're interesting and for what it's worth i didn't necessarily know where everyone was going and and apparently uh muhammad ali was an incredible uh tactician in terms of what he would do going into each fight and there's a great interview i think can't remember who it was with with Michael Mann around the time and he was just talking about how incredibly intelligent he was and these elaborate plans that he would have you know um, I won't spoil anything but you know he talks about some specific fights and some approaches but I, I was just really um, surprised by it a friend of mine who works at Scarecrow Video that I've never met actually he's just done a bunch of lists from my site he had championed this one years ago either on a discoveries list or some other list I can't remember 
and I was like, I, I trust him. I, I need to go back and look at this, and I'm really glad that I did. It was quite engaging and enthralling stuff. So. Yeah. Okay, then that's good. That's good to hear. Uh, that's I mean, I usually. Uh, w- when was that? Right after Insider, or after yeah, two thousand one. So it's like a couple years after Insider. I think yeah, it's his and next Insider is remarkable. So, I, I mean, one of my favorite know. movies of that decade. I've brought it up yeah. on the show earlier. It's well, it's remarkable that he makes something so f- absolutely compelling out of saying that shouldn't be, <laughs> you know, as no, compelling I'm with as you. that. It doesn't seem like it should be, at least from where I was. But yeah. man, oh man, very interesting. No, that, that's a great film. So I, I'll definitely trust it. Uh, I think, so yeah, it probably was at the moment that Will Smith factor is my guess. But yeah, I'm, I'm down. Uh, I went for, this one was easy because there's, uh, when I first saw Raging Bull, it had, you know, quite a harrowing effect on me, you know, probably, I don't know, 20 or whatever, uh, 19 maybe, when I started in college. And the the most uh, powerful screening I've ever attended in my life, which is pretty major to say, uh, was in New Zealand for a little movie called Once Were Warriors, directed by Lee Tamahori. It's from 94. Once Were Warriors, the story of one woman's fight for freedom. You're a hard lady, baby. You're a hard man, Jason. Aren't they beautiful when they're like that? Just drunk, that's all. People say their true feelings when they're drunk. I've got a temper on me, but who hasn't? One family's fight for survival. Oh, leave that kid alone. You know, that's your problem. He's born a lot of them. Don't care about any of us. Don't, Jakey. You love them. This is trouble, Jake. I do. I don't think I'm ever likely to uh, feel a movie the way I felt that movie uh, in New Zealand. This is considered, you know, it's probably the most satirized and poked fun at, but also most influential movies ever made in that country by far. It's the movie. If there's one movie that would represent New Zealand at the movie Olympics, it would be this film because it had such an earthquake effect on the country and the culture uh, when everyone saw this movie uh, and I was in one of the very first screenings I think I was 16 and I remember A, the movie itself is utterly harrowing and, and I'll get to the connections which are very clear with this movie but the movie ended and there's all this so much you know domestic violence is the big connector like between the husband you know husband to wife domestic violence but also just a feeling of that we had just been shown life that's been going on for all these years secretly but no one's ever told anyone uh, including sexual abuse and things like that like but that it almost felt like the movie that took the lid off something that was always there and suddenly everyone felt it in the theater and then at the, as it ended and about two or three guys in the theater just erupted into a Maori uh, haka, which is the, you know, the war dance that is part of the All Blacks when the rugby games happen uh, in this country. That's what people would know for. But it's this very intense thing anyway. But to do it in a movie theater suddenly as a movie ends was like freaking i mean it was just like i just never have experienced a movie the way this one felt and this film also i can tell it's deeply influenced by the the cutting of uh raging bull but also the main character jake the muss um as played by timurera morrison who americans know as boba fett (laughs) or the sidekick (laughs) in uh, barbed wire which is a real shame because in this film he gives as good a performance as de niro almost in uh raging bull but what's really interesting is he is a ra- the raging bull in this movie he's the raging bull that is destroying you know everything around him but um yeah this film's this it, it, it tells you everything you need to know by the opening shot which i just always think is so great because when i tell people i'm from new zealand they 
instantly just oh it's everything's perfect and idyllic and pristine and this movie opens with this beautiful uh shot of a wide landscape a gorgeous mountain it more or less looks like what you imagine lord of the rings look like um so it's kind of the idea the travelogue version of new zealand and it's and you think you're watching uh you know a real shot and it slowly pulls out to reveal it's a billboard for New Zealand, and then it slowly tilts down to show this urban, gritty, you know, dirty, shitty-looking city, which is, you know, a suburb of Auckland, which is where the film is set, and it really starts focusing on these characters and this fit Maori family, um, the Hekis, and, you know, you have uh, people unemployed who are living off, uh, you know, government unemployment, uh, spending his day, you know, ex kind of ex people ex-cons ex-gang members uh this kind of world where they spend their days drinking in bars getting into bar fights and there's there's moments that when you feel the punches in raging bull almost even more so in this movie that it really connects the the violence is so visceral but where it really connects these movies is is this domestic violence at home you know where where the most quoted line in new zealand movie history is uh uh you know where jake says to his wife at a bar at a party they're having late at night he's like hey cook us some eggs a bit oh and some bacon Fuck up! what the fuck's going on oh, i asked for some eggs bro cook the men some eggs you want eggs we'll have the bloody lot of them it's okay man Cook the man some fucking eggs. Do it yourself, Jake! Got <laughs> the fucking slave around here, Jake! <laughs> and then he, like, starts beating her and in a way that I've never seen in a movie. Like, Yikes. domestic abuse. It's like you feel that first punch, like, as if you were hit. Like, I don't know how aesthetically sometimes filmmakers are able to capture that i remember thinking that in the new evil dead as well like the evil dead remake there's certain blows that you feel whereas often violence is just happening but there's some moments in a movie where you're like oh that's what this is able to capture in a way that and the emotion is so uh intense it's it's one of the most intense emotional movies i've ever seen and I don't think it's just because we were watching it coming from New Zealand. I think it actually does travel. Um, obviously, it's it's a little deeper being there. But there's so many similarities to of these characters because they also they also show his charm. They show why because he's also drinking a lot and drunk and comes from neglect and abuse. But then they show those moments where he's not drunk, where he is looking out for his wife and does is the sweet person to her and is trying to do those things for his kids. And, and then the demons take over and, and it's not worth it. It, it. it never says it's okay. It never says he's okay, but it looks at the whole picture. I and mean, there's a lot of other, uh, you know, forms of abuse, but there's also this really interesting glimmer of hope. Uh, and, the title once or worries kind of alludes to the pride that still exists in this uh, lineage and uh, his wife, Beth, you know, her ability to kind of 
try to survive this by the end of the movie for her kids and for their future this kind of uh this kind of world that they've been uh living in it's it's a movie that i'd utterly recommend to anyone at some point if you can handle you know one viewing of a movie like this it's it's really uh one of the most you know powerful films you could imagine and and it's just it's so perfectly raging bull now that said i would not watch these together Uh, i think they're a good pairing to be watched on different time periods not back-to-back uh movies uh it's also shot by uh Stuart dryberg uh, who is the my favorite New Zealand cinematographer, but he's also the DP for all of Jane Campion's films, shot in the cut, the piano. Um, I got to go to a, an interesting little workshop with him recently. He came to the school I work at, uh, unrelated to my school. This other program was doing a workshop, and so I got to talk to him, and he was showing all these clips from New Zealand films, and he kept saying, well, I bet no one's seen any of these, <laughs> and I had seen every one of them because <laughs> I, I was a plant. But uh, it, it was great to hear you know, how, the effect they were trying to really just get to this visceral, you know, uh, just roll back any artifice uh, to what this movie has. And uh, I assume you would have had this one pop up in video stores uh, absolutely. back in the day. Yeah. I, did, okay. I never saw it, but it absolutely came up, yeah. Oh, man. you this is uh, So this is Lee Tamahori who, watching this, you would think this guy would definitely go on to make something else. I mean, he made some big American movie. He made a James Bond movie. He made The Edge. Yep, he made The Edge, which is really good, I actually think. Um, he made uh, Mahon Falls which is interesting, doesn't quite work. But he um, you know, he definitely never made that huge breakthrough American movie, I don't think, compared to this film. This film is, is it's interesting that I have two Australasian movies on this list, but they, they really suit uh, the thing. And also it's the birth of Cliff Curtis. Uh, he plays Uncle Bully, pretty much the most hated character in uh, New Zealand cinema because of what he does in this movie is so grotesque. He's he's the uncle to these uh, the kids in this movie and does something terrible. And he Eesh. he gets his comeuppance by uh, Jake the Muss. And it's a uh, it's just it's just one of those movies where you're like, oh my god, so much. You you need you need time to recover afterwards. But it's also funny because in New Zealand it's also kind of a joke because it's the movie, so it's so quoted and referenced. And but it but it's not a joke when you watch it. Like there's no one could watch it and it, you, you'll still always take it seriously because it's so emotionally honest and and it, i think it just opened up a world that people hadn't seen in the same way i imagine if you had gone to raging bull with your italian american family uh and been floored by how um you know honest it was about those relationships so that's that's that pairing uh, at your peril do not watch them together <laughs> Um, but do watch it because I do think it's a movie that uh, you'd be surprised at how, and it's so well made. It's not made in a like gritty neorealist way. It's made in this very polished, the guy comes from, uh, Lee Tamahori came from advertising. So it's made in this, like, it's still gritty, but it's made wow. in this very muscular, clean, stylized way that is surprising. And that's one of the things I think that's so impressive about it. Um, anyway. Uh, it's definitely one one for the ages, and that, I'd say that and Heavenly Creatures are probably the two New Zealand films best known, you know, outside of New Zealand. Very nice. Got to check it out. Yeah. So that is uh, that is the first seven Martin Scorsese movies with pairings in our first episode of the sequence. Yes. Um, pretty epic stuff. Hopefully you enjoyed it. We're definitely looking forward to the next two pods, if you will. 
this has been really fun so far and neat to see none of your pairings were what I expected. Not that I ever think I'm going to know, but there weren't what I expected either. Most of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, and also hopefully there's some in there that people haven't heard of or, or and can go discover, which is half the fun of the movies. So absolutely. Uh, uh, and I need to see that one of yours too. The gambling one sounded really great. Totally. Um, so and we and we are recording this you know a little ahead of uh when we're back so there's going to be a lot of uh there'll be some changes and things happening that we don't have all the answers yet so we're not gonna uh talk about them all but be rest assured there'll be interesting episodes uh coming up very soon yes thank you so much for sticking with us and uh if you're new to the show we hope you enjoyed it and we'll come back and listen some more (laughs) 